Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, music off. Podcast initiate. All right, guys. Welcome back. Maps of Meaning Part 4. Continuing our Jordan B. Peterson lectures. Um, so we're getting towards the end, and we got, we got this interesting spot that we're in now in the book where where Jordan pivots from talking about kind of ordinary experience, um, our day-to-day and our kind of individual psychologies, understanding ourselves and how we how we think and, and all that sort of thing, um, how we see ourselves, the stories we tell about ourselves, all that all that business. And he pivots there from kind of talking about this on an individual basis to talking about it on a mythological basis. So I want to recap something that Jordan said to try to make this sink in a little bit. Um, and I really can't remember. I can't remember if this came up in the the last episode or not. But the idea of um, a story versus a meta story, or a hero versus a meta hero, this is something that Jordan talks about, and it's really easy to understand. It's basically just saying, "Look, imagine you have um, a lifetime. Now, put yourself in like a primitive, uh, you know, I don't know, Stone Age sort of situation. You're living in a tribe. You're li- you're living hand to mouth. That's the way human beings lived for most of our existence. So, put yourself in that position." And imagine throughout the course of your life, you see admirable things from people, um, admirable acts. Okay, so maybe somebody in the village got attacked by a crocodile or something, and one of the um, one of the villagers jumped in the water and and uh, you know risked life and limb to save the uh, the, the the child that was in you know in the alligator's jowls or something like that. So maybe that happened. Maybe maybe there was a period of time where the where the village was uh, starving, you know, maybe the uh, not a lot to eat and a really desperate time and some member of the, uh, or multiple members of the tribe, they go out into the wilderness, they take risks, they bring back some some meat or whatever it is. So you've got these people that are taking risks, they're putting their life on the line um, and they're doing it selflessly. They're doing it for other people. So you see this this sort of thing being done. Maybe you see it happen five, six, twenty, a hundred times in your life. I don't know. But each time you see something like that, um, you recognize, hey man, that that person is is heroic. They're acting heroically. I can't you know I can't believe they they did that. What a great thing. You know that's how we we see each and every one of those individual examples. But what we can do though is we can look at all of those different situations and think about what 
what was heroic about them all, right? They're all different situations. You know, one time somebody had to leave to go find food. Um, you know, maybe somebody had to put their life at risk to save another member of the tribe or whatever it is. Each one of these examples is different. But, what, but what's similar about it is the voluntary risk-taking and, um, hero, you know, all-around heroic behavior that this person uh, demonstrated. So imagine you've got, you know, a whole bunch of those examples and you can kind of piece out from that. Well, you know, what was, what was the heroic part? Um, what was the behavior that, that the hero in this, each example followed and, and it, what's common between all of these different stories. And so what happens is you condense down a whole bunch of different heroic acts of individuals. You condense it down into something like um, like a hero, something that's not exactly real. It's not an individual. It's this abstract thing that is hero-like. It's like, you, if you do this, you'll be a hero. If you act like this, and I can tell that because I can see all these different examples where people acted like this, and they, and they were heroic. So this is the idea. Um, the individual acts that we just described, um, you know, those are, those are hero stories. No doubt, those are hero stories. But if we take all of those stories and we condense them down into one great hero story, uh, now we've got something that Jordan calls a meta story or a meta hero. We have all these individual heroes in the tribe over, a, you know, a 90-year lifespan that I've witnessed, let's say. Um, and I can condense all of those stories down into one nugget. And that nugget, I'm again, that's like the culture hero. That's the religious hero. Um, that's the hero that we tell stories about to our children so that they grow up um, understanding what path they can follow if they too want to be heroic. So we kind of condense that down into this nugget and that becomes the meta hero or the meta story. So again, um, I know that's a little bit convoluted, but the, uh, the distinction I'm trying to make is that we all have, you know, understand these individual stories. Um, and Jordan is now going to pivot to talking about these as mythological stories. So now, again, we're going to not no longer be talking about um, an individual hero or an individual story, but we're going to be talking about myths, right? So not stories, but myths at this point. We're, we're talking about meta stories. And the heroes that we're going to be talking about aren't individual heroes um, like we were talking, like we were describing a moment ago, but they're like superheroes. They're, they're gods, you know, they're, they're this condensed version of, of all of those individual stories. So that's going to give you some context as to moving on, uh, you know, into part four. And this is really going to circle around a myth. So what we're going to do today is talk about the myth. Uh, it's called the Anuma Elish. It's, um, you know, one of the oldest myths that, that we have record of. It goes back to ancient Sumeria, the cradle of civilization where, you know, where civilization began. It's so going back many, many thousands of years before, uh, you know, before the height of ancient Egypt, before the height of, uh, you know, ancient Greece, way back. And we've got this creation story. Again, it's called the Anuma Elish. We're going to read it. We're going to summarize it a little bit. We're going to read bits and pieces from it. We're going to talk about it quite a lot. But the idea here is to bridge this gap between all the stuff we've been talking about in the last couple of, uh, of Maps of Meaning episodes about um, the story we tell about our lives, about this this mythological landscape that we that we live in, our subjective experience. And what we're going to do is we're going to start talking about this myth and, you know, lots of myths from around the world. 
and see how they tell the same story. We're basically going to see how we're going to reverse engineer how we came up with our meta stories, our myths. And the most important myths, as far as I'm concerned, are the ones that talk about how we got here, the creation stories. And that's what the Enuma Elish is. All right, so I want to kick this off with a quote from, um, from Maps of Meaning, and it goes like this. It is reasonable to presume that over the long run, our species forgets most things that are useless. We do not forget our myths, however. Indeed, much of the activity broadly deemed cultural is in fact the effort to ensure that such myths are constantly represented and communicated. Interesting. So, so it's interesting. I mean, he's saying here that if things aren't useful to us, we're not going to remember them. And we like to think about, uh, in the modern era, these myths as these old stories that, you know, maybe they had some meaning once upon a time, but they're, they're empty now. They're, they're, you know, fables, they're, uh, fi- fictional stories that don't have any meaning. You know, that's, that's, that's kind of the modern, um, the modern take on, on mythology. Uh, what he's saying is, look, if that were true, we would have forgotten that. We would have forgotten these stories. Why are we continuing to tell them? Why is it so important that we remember them? We don't even really understand it. We just keep telling the stories. Um, and he's, again, he's just pointing out here that, look, it's not fair to write off myths as fables and, and phony stories because, you know, the bottom line is we keep telling the stories. Why? Why are we keeping them alive if they're, if they're useless? So there's something here. There's something more here to these myths, and we're, that's what we're going to get into. <clears throat> um, so again, Jordan's just basically saying that we continue to tell the stories because the message in these myths is so important that we can't allow it to disappear. So we keep telling the story even though, even though most of us, I would say, don't understand the meaning behind these, these myths that, that we're telling. We don't really understand it. We just keep telling the stories, maybe because it's tradition, because it's habit, because your parents did it and your grandparents did it and all that. Um, but still, there's something of value there that is allowing us or preventing us from writing off these stories and not, not, and not repeating them to our children uh, because we're still doing that, even in the modern, uh, modern world. Um, okay, so myths are important. Let's get into it. All right, so the opening section here I call Our Lives versus the stories we tell about our lives. All right, so it opens up like this. Uh, the world as forum for action. And you remember Jordan talks about, he just makes a distinction between the world, he, he calls it as place of things, which is sort of how the, the scientific uh, perspective looks at the world. And then he, he contrasts that by saying the world is a forum for action, which is just saying the, the, the world that we actually experience, the world that's meaningful to us is a place where we can do things. So that's how we want to look at the world as a, as a, a place like that, not as a... You know, not as a one-dimensional, scientific, dry, scientific world. We we want to we want to look at it the way that it, the way that it seems to us. You know, in the scientific world is not. I think you'd all agree it's not the way the world seems to us. You know, there are parts that maybe that maybe are, but for the most part, we don't look at the world and see electrical activity and compounds and atoms and electrons floating around and swishing orbitals. We don't think about that stuff. It doesn't seem that way to us. Um, how the world seems is is 
again, not exactly a scientific perspective. It's something different. So that's what he's talking about here. He says, the world is formed for action, comprises three constituent elements of experience, and a fourth that precedes them. Okay, so this is interesting, because this is the first time we've talked about these three constituent elements already, the known, the knower, and the unknown. Uh, we talked about that because that's how we see uh, ourselves, and that's how we tell kind of the story that we tell about our lives. It involves these three components. And what he's, what he's trying to do here is, is talk about how you also see them in myths. But he introduces a fourth one, which I, I thought was kind of strange, actually. Um, but I think, I think he's trying to draw attention to something, and we'll get to it. But he's saying that we've got these three constituent elements of our experience, the known, the unknown, and the knower. And then we've got this fourth thing that comes before them. He says it precedes them. And he, so it goes on like this. The unknown, the knower, and the known make up the world. The indeterminate, and this is an interesting phrase, pre-cosmogonic chaos preceding their emergence serves as the ultimate source of all things, including the three constituent elements of experience. All right, so pre-cosmogonic chaos. Let me just define this one for you. That's a mouthful, although I do kind of like it. Um, so you can see pre-cosmogonic, that just means before the cosmos. So before there was anything material here, there was this chaos, this pre-cosmogonic chaos. So we just call that chaos for, for simplicity. And it came first. And from it comes the known, the unknown, and the knower. Um, so here, here's the first time in the book, kind of in the middle of the book, where Jordan seems to make a distinction between the unknown that we've been talking about, you know, uh, so, so far in the last couple of lectures, about the things that we individually don't know. And the, the way that we, you know, experience those unknown things and generate knowledge from them and build our world with that knowledge. We talked about that in the last episode. So we kind of know about this unknown. But he's making a distinction when he talks about pre-cosmogonic chaos. Because remember, when we use the word chaos before, it's the same as the unknown. The, the words meant the same thing. So why is it now that this pre-cosmogonic chaos is some, somehow this fourth thing. It's different from the unknown. I thought that was interesting. It's like uh, it's like chaos is presented here as God, as the source and the structure of reality, where the unknown that we talked about before is just limited to an aspect of our experience. So I'm not sure why he's bringing this distinction up now, uh, but he is. Um, so the unknown is transformed into the known and used to build our subjective worlds, uh, our world of experience. So how, how is it different from, a, from this mythological perspective um, where chaos is, is creating the cosmos? Um, so we'll get, we'll get there. I think it's interesting that he brings this up kind of right in the middle of the book. Um, and what he's getting at here, I think, is, well, I'll, I'll try to make it clear here. The this extends like this. He says the pre-cosmogonic chaos tends to make metaphorical form take metaphorical form as the Ouroboros. So we talked about that before. This is the this is the serpent, uh, the snake that swallows its tail, or the dragon that swallows its tail. It looks like a circle. That's something that Jung called the round, the complete, the wholeness. That's the thing that the mystic experience tells you about, the oneness. So this is, this is the mythological image of it, the Ouroboros. It's the self-consuming serpent. And Jordan says... The Ouroboros represents the union of matter and spirit. Okay, so I have to remind you when Jordan talks about spirit, or at least when Carl Jung talks about spirit, um, he means something like psyche, 
like what we would say today, psyche. Um, in the old days, maybe we'd call it soul or spirit, but uh, but I think psyche is more uh, more appropriate in the kind of modern world. Uh, it's that that's that subjective world. It's the world that is order. Um, so he says that the pre-cosmogonic chaos represents the union of matter and psyche, let's say, matter and spirit, and the possibility of transformation. He says the Ouroboros serves as a primal source of the mythological world parents, the great mother, nature, deity of the unknown, creative and destruction, the great father, culture, deity of the familiar, tyrannical and protective, and their divine son, the knower, the generative word, the process of exploration. All right, so let's unpack that a little bit. So the Ouroboros, this thing that existed before the cosmos, he's saying that what that is, is a is a combination of uh, the great mother and the great father, the known and the unknown, and also the also the knower, the divine son. So all of these things sort of rolled up into one, uh, something like that. That's how we're supposed to understand this. So again, um, that might start to be fleshing out a little bit when you when you're hearing Jordan talk about the unknown and chaos as if they're different, and then here saying, well, look, when I'm talking about this pre-cosmogonic chaos. Well, all I'm really talking about here is these three characters we've been talking about, chaos and order and the knower, you know, the, the known, the unknown, and the knower, that those, th- those things taken as a whole, um, that's what he means by the Ouroboros or the pre-cosmogonic chaos, that, that really they're all one thing. Um, so let's keep going here. He says, the ancient Mesopotamian creation myth, the Enuma Elish, so now we get to the story here, provides a concrete example of the interplay of these personalities. So now he's basically, we're going to be talking about the great mother or, or chaos, the great father or order, but we're going to be talking about them using the names of the gods from this culture. So this is where it gets interesting. So rather than saying the great mother or chaos, I'm going to be talking about the goddess Tiamat. And he says this, he says, in the ancient Mesopotamian creation myth, it provides a concrete example of the interplay between these personalities. Tiamat, the feminine dragon of chaos, primordial goddess of creation. And then he goes on right here, he says, the Ouroboros and the Great Mother are conflated, as is frequently the case. So he's pointing out here that in the Onuma Elish, when they describe the, the dragon of chaos, the goddess Tiamat, that she is the unknown. Uh, but she's also, you know, when I, when I say unknown, I mean the great mother, that character that she's supposed to be. But she's also seen as the Ouroboros too. So uh, I, mean, I should say also. So she's look she's looked upon as uh, the great unknown, but she's also looked upon as um, as the combination of chaos, order, and the knower, the 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 known, the know, unknown, and the knower. All of those things together. So so it's conflated in the myth, like in, even in the culture. They didn't really make a distinction between the goddess Tiamat and, uh, you know, like the structure or the matrix of being, the thing that all of everything comes from. That, that, that's Tiamat. Um, so it's a little bit convoluted in the story for that reason, but we'll, we'll talk about that. So Tiamat, that's one character. That, that's the one that corresponds to chaos, the feminine dragon of chaos. The next one is the god Apsu. Now, she's Tiamat's husband. Um, the next one is, is Marduk. And he's the sun deity and the mythic hero. So Apsu, again, married to Tiamat, he's order. She's chaos, he's order. And Marduk is the, is the knower. He's the force that mediates between them. Um, Marduk, the sun god. And he goes on to say, Tiamat symbolizes the great unknown, 
the matrix of the world. Absu the known, the pattern that makes existence possible. And Marduk represents the process that eternally mediates between the matrix and existence. Okay, so it's basically everything we talked about from the last episode. From when we're talking about how we experience our lives, um, going out, encountering something we've never encountered before, uh, turning that thing into something that that's familiar and known, gaining some knowledge, some information that we can use from that encounter in our lives, as Jordan would say, kind of building our world from it. Um, so, so it is my feeling that that order and chaos are one thing. That that is the Ouroboros, like Jordan's talking about, chaos and order together. Um, I don't really see that as a conflation of chaos uh, and the Ouroboros. So, you know, that's what Jordan pointed out. And then this is the one rare instance where I might disagree with him a little bit on this stuff. I'm not really sure that that, that the story is conflating chaos and the Ouroboros, like, like that's a problem. I'm not so sure. Um, and I think if, if we look at chaos and order by themselves, then, then again, we're, we're missing something. If we're looking at those um, characters, you might say, by themselves, that we're missing something. But, um, but I'm not sure that the conflation is a problem only because, um, well, you can't have one without, without the other. The Ouroboros is chaos and order together. So the, the pre-cosmogonic chaos that he's talking about it is, it includes chaos. So the conflation to me seems natural. I mean, there you can't have the Ouroboros without order as well, but you can't have it without chaos. So to come to associate those two things to me doesn't really seem doesn't really seem problematic to me. All right. So the original state in the myth of Tiamat and Apsu of, of chaos and order is is one thing in this in this pre cosmogonic egg or or. Uh, chaos, the word he's, he's used so far, that they're originally they were together in this egg or in this, in this oneness. Um, and what's interesting is that that's, that because Tiamat and Apsu are considered to be male and female or masculine and feminine, you could say, that when they talk about those things being originally one thing, that what that brings to mind is sex. So you've got a man and a woman together. Well, what does that remind you of? The beast with two backs. Am I right, fellas? So, so Tiamat and Apsu are um, together. So if they're together, they're in sexual union. And so what happens in the myth is exactly what you'd expect to happen in the myth. Gods are born from this, from this union. So what's interesting, though, because this is part, this is subtle, but it's really important. So Tiamat and Apsu in the beginning are not separated. They're just one thing. And from the one thing, all of these other gods are born. And the, the material world is born, you know, from their union, from their se- having sex. But it's, in the story, it's not like they've, it's not like they're having sex exactly. It's just, like, it's just that they're together. So there's something like there's an interaction here between these two halves of the, of the two sides of the coin, or these two halves of the, um, um, of the uh, yin yang symbol, you might say, um, that just having them together is is doing something, something creative. Um, so, so in the myth, Tiamat and Apsu they do get separated, and we're going to get there. But when they um, when they're separated, excuse me, while they're together, rather, they're they're giving birth to all these gods. They're called the elder gods, and this is something that you see in all kinds of mythology, like you know, maybe familiar from the. Greek or the um, 
or the Viking uh, mythology where uh, where you've got a race of gods that are born first. You know, I think it's the Titans, uh, the Titans in the Greek um, religion, and then the Olympians were later. You know, and then there was the Assyr and the Veneer and the and the Nor- and the Nordic religion. So you've got these uh, themes where you've got like certain gods that are born first, and then you've got so those those are the elder gods, and then you've got these newer gods that come into being later. So this is a very common theme. So this is what's happening here. Tiamat and Apsu are the primordial gods, the first god, kind of singular together, and their union is just spitting out gods left and right. And what these gods are, they're the constituent elements of reality. They're all of the things that we think of that are necessary for the world to exist, for the cosmos to exist. So it's the natural forces, the the gods of spirit and storms and matter and energy and all that sort of thing that you can imagine. These gods representing all the things that are needed to build the world. Now these gods, um, these elder gods, in the story they actually kill Apsu. Kill the god Apsu. Now he's the one that represents order. He's the great father. So they go and they kill order. Um, and Jordan says that, the, that when the gods kill Apsu, he says what they don't realize is that they unconsciously depend on Apsu because without order, they just fall back into chaos again. So, so when the gods kill Apsu, when they remove order, they're they're setting themselves up for some real serious shit, and they don't really understand what they've done. So when they do that, Jordan goes on, he says, Tiamat reappears with a vengeance and decides to destroy everything she created. Her children um, send one volunteer uh, after another to overpower her. So these are all the elder gods. They're one after another going after Tiamat, trying to trying to destroy her. Because if, she, if they don't, she's going to kill them all. Um, but all of these uh, elder gods fail. None of them can defeat Tiamat. They try and fail. And finally, Marduk, he's one of the the youngest gods. He comes up and he says, look, I'll take, I'll take Tiamat on. I'll do battle with her. He's elected the king, the greatest of the gods, and he voluntarily confronts Tiamat. He cuts her apart and creates the cosmos from her pieces. So this is important. It's important for a couple reasons, because Jordan has already talked about how we, psychologically speaking, encounter the unknown and build the world from the information we get from that encounter. So we go and we explore. We have this creative, exploratory, you know, activity, as Jordan would say. We go out, we, we explore, we, we, we learn, we, we, we're checking things out, we're figuring things out. Um, we, when we do that, we use that information to build our world, the world that we understand, the world that is order, as we talked about in the last, in the last uh, episode. So when Tiamat gets cut apart and her body gets... Cr- turned into the to the cosmos um you know this reminds me uh not only of jordan talking about building the world psychologically and you can see that tm this tiamat story and marduk and tiamat here are maybe a uh a meta story there it's it's a myth that tells us about that same process that we go through in our individual lives but we can look at this story even as children when we don't understand when we don't have enough life experience to understand what the heck it is we're we're looking at we can we can read or listen to the story of Tiamat and Marduk and we can understand um you know maybe at some point in the future when we're when we're um you know developed enough uh to kind of get to that psychological stage to identify um with Marduk we say look i i know the story 
I know the hero has to go out and f- fight with the unknown and create the world out of it. And eventually I'm going to realize, uh, because that story keeps being told and told and told, that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Marduk. I can follow that example that I've been hearing about from my parents and grandparents my entire life. Um, I can go out into the unknown. You know, I can quote unquote do battle with Tiamat. I can, I can do that. And that's what the myth, that's what the story of the myth is telling you. The other thing that's interesting is the connection between Tiamat being cut up and created into the cosmos with lots of other myths. And this isn't something that Jordan specifically talks about, but I've talked about it before. and I'll bring it up again is that in myths from all over the world, you see the same story, the story about this primordial God uh, being, um, I guess, dying and having its body or sacrificing itself to create the cosmos from its body. That this is a story we see, obviously, in uh, Mesopotamia, this really ancient story in the Enuma Elish, but we also saw it in the Viking religion with the god Ymir, who we talked about. Um, he's this primordial frost giant who who dies, and uh, uh, his body gets used to create the the world. Um, you know, the, the examples with Ymir are similar to a story we hear in China about a god called Pangu, and from India about a god called Prajapati. And in all three of these situations, and there are probably others, these are the ones I know of, in all three of these situations, the same thing's true. The stories are a little different, but in, 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 in all cases, the primordial god is torn to pieces, and its body is used to create the cosmos. So it's, it might be, like I said, its um, bones turn into the mountains, its eyes turn into the sun and the moon, you know, its uh, whatever, its hair, its hair becomes the stars, whatever it is. There's all sorts of little details like that about how its body, its you know, blood becomes the oceans or, you know, whatever it is um, that, that are used to describe how the god is literally used to create the world. The god that represents chaos. All right, so um, so in all cases, whether we're talking about Tiamat, Ymir, Pangu, Prajapati, in all cases, order is, order is created from the chaos. Um, the idea that the union that the union of Tiamat and Apsu is generative um, is understood it's understood fractally. And so this fractal word comes up every time we talk about the mystic experience. So I just want to point out here that what we're seeing in the story, and this is this is also going to ring true because we talked a lot about this idea of as above, so below before, where where we can look at, let's say, ourselves and the world that we know, and we can deduce things about the heavenly world or about God from it, and vice versa, that that, that corresponds to this fractal idea from the mystic experience that, um, you know, that all things are just a representation of God, you know, ad infinitum, forever and ever. So we understand, obviously, sexual union, like we talked about, a man and a woman, masculine and feminine. When those principles join, when the the body of a man and the body of a woman come together, um, that w- what we're doing is we're sort of, in some ways, it's a, it's a ritual, it's a recreation of the original union of Tiamat and Apsu. When I come together with my wife, let's say, um, and the creative um, act of coming together creates children. Um, so it's not far-fetched uh, to, to, to look at that, to understand, you know, and I don't care how far back in history you go, we understand sex. That's the one thing we understand, all right? So, you know, you, you can see... Um, 
the sexual union of animals and of and of uh, humans in your environment. You can see the creation of children. Maybe you maybe you make that uh, abstraction even to um, the the growth of plants and, and plant life. Um, you know, maybe you can maybe you can make that connection. So you see it all around you, and so it makes sense that that's how it must be with gods. That's how it must have been with Tiamat and Apsu. And that's what I mean, this fractal thing. It's like the world of the gods is a mirror of the world of man. And so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be at all unusual to understand this union of Tiamat and Apsu as sexual and creative. And it again it's symbolic and it's hard to it's hard to understand because it's so abstract, but it corresponds exactly to what we understand about sex and creation. All right, so the Enuma Elish expresses an image and narrative, the idea that the psychological function giving order to chaos, one, creates the cosmos, and two, should occupy a superordinate position. So what he's saying here is that when you read the Enuma Elish, and we get to this idea of Marduk, the god Marduk, and we're going to have to explain Marduk in a, a little a lot more detail to kind of make sense of why this is important, but I'm saving that for a little bit later. Uh, that Marduk is made the king of the gods so that he can go out and uh, and risk doing battle with Tiamat. So when, when Jordan says that, that Marduk uh, should occupy a superordinate position, that's Marduk being the king of the gods, he's saying that that's a psychological function. And we'll see that in, in a bit, but Marduk represents consciousness. So he's a god that all of his characteristics, which we'll, again we'll see, uh, very clearly show him to, to be a representation of consciousness. And so Jordan is saying that the idea, this, this idea, whatever it is that, cr- that creates cosmos out of chaos, that that thing is a psychological function, and it's related to the god Marduk, uh, who's, again, associated with consciousness. So it's interesting. So here, um, Jordan acknowledges that, that it's a psychological function that gives order to chaos, that, that creates the cosmos. Let me say that again. Uh, Jordan Peterson, again, the the psychologist, the academic, he, he's, he's stepping on mystic territory here. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure he realizes he's doing it, but he's being very careful about it. But what he's saying here is that it is a psychological function, something about psyche. That's something that we understand ourselves to have, but we don't really usually understand, you know, anything else to have it, at least not in the way that we do. Maybe other maybe other higher higher mammals or something, but... But this is, again, a, a function of the psyche, and, and it creates the cosmos. Whoa. Something about consciousness and its relationship to creating the cosmos. That's what I mean. We're, we're really tiptoeing on mystic territory here. Um, so from the mythological perspective, this implies that the act of creation occurs through or in psyche. It's a psychological function, as he says. But what is psyche before creation? That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about uh, Tiamat and Apsu together. We're talking about the very beginning before anything ever existed. Before anything existed. So, so if that's a psychological function, then I have to ask the question, what is psyche before creation? Before life? Before there were any brains or minds? What is psyche then? Well, it seems that the image of chaos and order in union, this, this pre-cosmogonic egg, the Ouroboros, whatever you want to call it, it may be the, the, very, the, the representation of that very thing. So maybe it is this Ouroboros 
is a representation of psyche. And that is strange. Because again, we're talking about psyche before there's a body for it to for it to be in, or a mind for a psyche to be in, and that's kind of how we imagine our, our imagination or the the world of our of our subjective experience, the world in our minds. That's our psyche. So it's very strange thinking about it this way. Um, you know, it seems in this case that psyche is an ever present, eternal, and disembodied thing. Jordan Peterson would would say something like consciousness as such. And I believe that's true. I believe that's consistent with the mystic intuition. Consciousness is the matrix of being, where everything comes from. Consciousness is the Ouroboros. I believe that. Uh, But I'm not sure... I mean, it's just a strange way of trying to understand it. It's not an easy concept at all. So, I mean, I'm not criticizing Jordan Peterson in in, in any way for, for dancing around it this way. But it's just an interesting way to introduce this idea as a psychological function. And when Jordan says consciousness as such, that's something that, that as such suffix, he's basically saying, look, look at it as all by itself. Consciousness as such. Not tied to anything, not coming from anything, not, you know, dependent on anything, just all by itself. Imagine that. Might help if you close your eyes. Imagine that. Consciousness all by itself. So that's the thing, that's the thing he's alluding to, uh, as the as the matrix of being, as the Ouroboros. Interesting. All right, where do we go from here? Okay, the the great dragon of chaos, Jordan says, might be conceptualized as pure information, as latent information, and that's something we talked about in the last episode. It's a really interesting idea. Um, but the dragon of chaos so it might be conceptualized, and then we're talking about the Ouroboros here, as latent information before it is parsed into the world of the familiar, the unfamiliar, and the experiencing subject. So before the knower and the known and the unknown, there's this Ouroboros. He says it is the primary element of the world which is decomposed into cosmos and the exploratory process which separates the two. So it's really interesting, and I think really important. All the words Jordan uses in this, in this paragraph, he's talking about whatever it is that you know the universe springs from. We'll call it chaos or the dragon or whatever you want to call it. In, in this case, he calls it latent information, pure information. You might say information as such. So before that gets parsed into the world, before, before he says it gets decomposed into the cosmos, or before it separates. Um, all of these words, separates, parsed, decomposed, what they're talking about here is interesting. It's, it's like this. Jordan acknowledges that God, what he calls latent information or the matrix of being here, becomes the three mythological characters or the constituent elements of reality, the unknown, the known, and the knower. He doesn't say that they create the unknown, the known, and the knower. And so it's so funny because when we when we read creation myths, that's what, I mean, what, what word did I just use? Creation myths. We're talking about the idea that, that a supernatural force brings something into reality from nothing. That it creates it somehow. Poof, like that. But that's not what Jordan's saying here. He's saying that the myth doesn't, doesn't say that. It says that Whatever the Ouroboros is becomes the constituent elements of reality. 
It doesn't create them. Just like we were talking about before with Marduk tearing up Tiamat's body, or Ymir or Pangu, you know, their bodies becoming the cosmos. This is what this is more like what he's talking about here. You know, before they're parsed or decomposed or separated into being, he's saying that they become those three constituent elements. They don't create them. They all kind of already are them. So what does that mean? Well, I mean, this is sort of a this is sort of a metaphorical conversation, so it's really hard to pin down. Um, it, it's really hard to pin down exactly what I mean by that. But the important thing here is that is that we're understanding that the that the Ouroboros becomes by by separation or decomposition, it becomes the world. It doesn't create the world. So there's this there's this essential connection between God and the world, and that is a mystical intuition. And I think it's really important that we see it in the myth, and perhaps one of the one of the oldest myths that that you know that exist. So the subtext, the subtext is that they are one, and that's the same thing that's felt in mystic intuition. I think Jordan is is right to emphasize that the matrix ex- itself was parsed or decomposed or separated to form reality. And the image here is is God is one. And that the oneness is divided up or differentiated. And in that way, reality is understood to be the same thing as God. It's just divided up to to create all of the unique things that we know. But the thing itself that's being divided up, that's God. That's Tiamat. That's the Ouroboros. Um, and that's a very that's a pantheistic idea. And we we talked about pantheism, Kyle and I, when we did the episode on uh, Spinoza, and we talked about it. And I think in some other contexts, but the idea that, that we understand the cosmos to be somehow synonymous with God, this is really what this Anuma Elish is, is is dancing around. This idea of pantheism, and it doesn't get enough credit. It doesn't give enough people don't give that idea enough thought. I think it's really interesting. I think it. I think it's consistent with the mystic experience, and it happens to be consistent with this very ancient myth, the oldest myth we have about the story we tell about how we got here. Amazing. All right, so Jordan describes each of these mythological characters, the known, the unknown, and the knower, or the you know order, chaos, and divine son, or whatever phrases you want to use here. He describes them as bivalent, bivalent. We talked about this before. It's just a way of saying that... Um, that these characters all have different, um, they have two different um, or opposite manifestations, a good one and a bad one. So these two sides of each character, um, in, in like religion and mythology, they oftentimes, they, they get separated into like distinct gods. So like, for instance, you can look at the great mother like we already have as the thing that creates everything, but also the thing that destroys everything. So it's, she's bivalent. She's got a good version and a bad version. You know, think of Harvey Two-Face here from Batman. Um, the uh, same thing with the Great Father, with Order. You know, order is the um, culture, the thing that protects you from the, from the, the wild, from nature. Uh, but it's also tyranny. It's also the thing that micromanages. And, uh, you know, it's like a little bit of order is good. A lot of order is really bad. So this is what I mean, that each of these characters is bivalent. They're seen as having these kind of two opposing characteristics. And um, and this is something that's important. You know, it goes back to this idea that we talked about before, even just talking about Tiamat and Apsu together, you know, chaos and order together. 
um, is that that's that's the way that Jordan talks about um, the matrix of being. That you know the, the, the whatever the cosmos comes from. He talks about it as as a union of opposites, which we've talked about before. It's like in a way that um, when you when you take them together, they kind of they kind of disappear. They kind of don't exist. It's like good and bad. If you take them together, what do you ha- what do you have? They sort of cancel each other out. You sort of have nothing. And that this is this paradox that that when Apsu and Tiamat were together, you kind of had nothing. You had chaos and order together. Um, and uh, separating them is, is what causes reality to exist. So so you have to sort of pull apart the the good and the bad versions of, of each of these characters. You have to kind of separate them. And when you do that, then you then you've actually created something somehow. Then you've actually done something. Um, and, and it's but it's interesting that we see that happening in in myths, where when we're telling these stories to ourselves, sometimes we'll even give both sides of that character different names and consider them to be different gods, a good god and a bad god. Let's say, um, so the Ouroboros, um, you know, from like a Western Christian perspective, you might see that as God and the devil. The Ouroboros is them both together. Um, the knower, you know, the, the divine son, consciousness. If from a Western perspective, that's something like, like Jesus and Lucifer together. So God and the devil are the opposing sides of the, of the, of the coin, you know, in, in the Christian tradition. Jesus and Lucifer are opposing sides of the coin, the savior and the destroyer uh, of man. That we that we use oftentimes different characters in our myths to talk about them as if they are different personages, for lack of a better word, um, but they're but they're not. It's just a way of understanding them in story. So Jordan goes on. He says, "The bivalent, the bivalent great mother is creation and destruction simultaneously. The bivalent divine son is the sun god, the hero who journeys to the underworld, the savior of the world." And simultaneously, his sworn adversary, arrogant and deceitful. The bivalent great father is the wise king and the tyrant, cultural protection from the terrible forces of nature. Simultaneously, however, he is the force who devours his offspring. So I don't know what comes to mind there, but there's a myth about, uh, a Greek myth about Kronos. You guys probably remember uh, Kronos gives birth to all the Olympian gods with his wife, uh, Rhea, and... uh, and there, he, Kronos is concerned that one of his kids is going to over, uh, overthrow him and become the king of the gods in his place. So he swallows all of his children. And again, that's what we're talking about. The, the great father, he's, he's simultaneously the thing that protects you, but also the thing that devours you. And that's that image of Kronos eating his children. You guys may remember in the story, Rhea gives him a stone in place of Zeus, so he swallows the stone, and Zeus doesn't actually get eaten, and he's the one who eventually does over overthrow Kronos. So it's not like his fears were uh, were unjustified, but we're going to talk more about that idea too. Um, okay, so he, he devours his own offspring. Um, he actively suppresses any sign of dissent or difference, and that's the idea of too much order. That's the idea of a tyranny. That's the bad side of the great father. Now, the fact that the forces are represented bivalently as, as perfect opposites, um, it harkens back to the idea of oneness, this idea from the mystic experience. Um, 
So in their original united form, in their united state, um, they kind of canceled themselves out, so to speak. They sink back into the unconscious or they sink back into non-being. That it's the separation of them. It's the, it, that, that, it's that, whatever it is that differentiates the good version from the bad version, it's that separation thing. That's the thing that allows them to emerge into being. There's something important about the separation, like we just talked about before, where, where Tiamat and Apsu were originally together, and then they were separated um, to, to create the, the cosmos. Something important about the separation or differentiation, something important about them being bivalent the way they are, that seems to be necessary for them to exist exactly. It's interesting. Now, I think that the bivalence is yet another fractal representation of the original separation of chaos from order, so Apsu and Tiamat. This is one of those as-above-so-below situations. So it's like when Apsu and Tiamat were separated to create the cosmos, then all of the things that were created from Tiamat and Apsu, they also have to, they also have to separate into two. So Tiamat and Apsu get split into two, and all of the things they created have to get split into two. All of the gods... Have and now are now a, a, a good and a bad version of themselves, um, and so you've got this fractal thing happening here. What happened to the primordial gods is happening to the elder gods, and then you would assume that those things are also going to to happen at every level of the fractal plane, including including our our existence, our world, ourselves even. So just as the Ouroboros was differentiated or split into two, the, the newly differentiated gods are immediately fractured into two, um, you know, good and bad. And it brings to mind it brings to mind a related idea that we talked about in the physics episode about about entanglement. You know, there's this idea in physics that um, if things are created in the same quantum um, event, that they're always connected. So even though they're separate things, and they might even be separated by, you know, inf infinite distances, let's say, or even times, or even dimensions for that matter, that uh, physicists believe that they are always going to act identically. If one changes, the other one changes. There's, it's as though they're one thing, even though they're two. And this is what comes to mind. It's like at the most fundamental level of reality, at the quantum level, things are like this as well. They're in, they're, they're in multiple forms that are really one, just like we're seeing with, with uh, Tiamat and Apsu, just like we're seeing with these bivalent versions of all the other gods that, again, seem to be just sort of a mirror, a fractal mirror of this original separation of, of chaos and order. And it's that differentiation that's responsible for the emergence of being, for reality. All right. All right, change course a little bit. Um... We're going to talk about myths a lot, and we're going to focus on the um, Enuma Elish today, but when we go on, we're going to talk about Egyptian myths. You've seen me pepper in myths from China and India and, you know, Greece and Rome, and that we'll just keep doing that. Um, so, I, so we really need to address a question, which is, why do similar myths appear all over the world and all across space and time? You know, can we... Can we meaningfully compare myths across different cultures? Like, is it... If one one society tells a myth, uh, it happens to be similar to another one, but they're separated by, you know, impossible distances and, impos and, and, and impossible stretches of time. Let's say there's no connection between the two cultures. If they have a similar story, can we talk about them? Can we compare them? 
if there isn't a connection between those people, do we have any basis of, of talking about those two stories or multiple stories together? Can we do that? Is it, is it okay? Is it meaningful? Is it wrong? You know, there's a lot of scientists that would say, look, if there's no connection between the people, you, you cannot compare their stories. If you're doing that, you're just reading into it because the cultures are, are so important in how these people develop and how their ideas develop. It's really not fair for you to con- compare stories that are being told by people who have no connection between one another. Uh, well, Jordan and, and Carl Jung have a very different, uh, very different um, uh, philosophy there. So, and I, and I would side on, on their side here in this, in this situation, but there's some reasons why. Um, so let's, let's talk about that. Carl Jung attempted to account for the apparent universality of world interpretations of common mythic stories with a hypothesis of the collective unconscious. So we've heard that word associated with Carl Jung, the collective unconscious. Jung believed that the religious or mythological symbols sprung from a universal source whose final point of origin was biological and heritable. Okay, so, so Carl Jung saying, look, yes, we can compare similar stories across time and space, even among people who, aren't, who have no connection with one another. Why can we do that? Because the stories they tell, um, the, the characters, let's say, and the stories that they're telling, the myths that they're telling that make up their culture, that those things come from the same source. So it doesn't matter where the, you know, when the stories were told or in what context, because all of the because all of the meat of the story is coming from this place called the collective unconscious, and it's something that is ultimately biological and heritable. He's saying it's something that we inherit from our parents, just like our DNA. Interesting. All right, Jordan goes on to say his collective unconscious was composed of complexes. So we we, had, we heard the word arch- archetypes talked about before in in that context. Archetypes are what's made up here in the collective unconscious. But we're going to talk about something here called complexes, which is a little different. Um, so he says he says that the collective unconscious was composed of complexes, which he defined as heritable propensities for behavior or for classification. Young did not really believe that individual memories themselves could be transmitted. When he speaks formally of the collective unconscious, he is at pains to point out that it is the possibility of categorization that is inherited. So that's interesting. You know, he's saying, look, it's not like it's not like I can pass along my memory to my children. I can't do that. But there's something in our biology, and I don't know if it's I don't know if we can say whether it's psyche or whether it's, you know, in our in our DNA, if, if it's, you know, in our, in our strictly in our biology or something else, but that there's something there that we do pass to our children. And that's something that is what he calls the possibility of categorization. It's like we have, we all have this similar f- faculty to categorize things. And why is that important? Well, let's keep reading. How can the fact of patterned stories, archetypal stories, be reconciled with the apparent impossibility of inherited memory? So this is a question that Jordan asks. Individuals serve as the temporary agents of embodied memory for the entire culture at any given locale and time. Well, that's also an interesting idea. So you can imagine, you and I, that what we are is an embodied memory of our entire culture. Think about that. You grew up in a particular culture. You learned how to exist in that culture. 
Now, everything you do, everything you think, every action you take, um, everything you want, everything you value, that all of that stuff has been, in some sense, influenced by what's been taught to you and, and demonstrated uh, to you by the people in your in your lives. And all of that stuff is is happening within a cultural context, within a sort of a larger societal context. So you and I are these living, breathing embodiments of the culture that we're walking around in. For instance, if you were an alien, if you were a space alien, and you were just sitting there watching me, you could learn a tremendous about a, a tremendous amount about my culture, the things I believe and value, just by watching me. Just by seeing what I do, how I how I interact with people, you can deduce a tremendous amount from my behavior. So what that makes me is something like a symbol. Just like I look at a just like I look at a symbol or, or one of these images from the from my psychedelic or mystic experience and I'm teasing out, you know, uh, meaning from it. Or maybe I'm doing the same thing with a dream image or something. I'm I'm teasing out meaning and information out of, out of this symbol. That there's something like that that we are. We're like an embodiment of, a, of our culture, a symbol that you can examine and deduce what the culture is from just watching me. I'm, I'm a living, breathing, you know, microcosm of the culture. And remember, the, remember the culture is what Jordan calls mythologically the great father. That's, our, that's order. So, so we're something like that. So he goes on to say, the behavioral patterns that make up our stories might be regarded as stored in our social behavior. This implies that such patterns may be abstracted from that behavior at any time. The collective unconscious is, from this perspective, embodied behavioral wisdom. Here it is. It is the cumulative transmitted consequences of the fact of exploration. So something about something about this exploratory process that all of life has, has participated in since the very beginning, that all of that sort of stacks up on top of, of, uh, you know, each other and gets passed on to us from, uh, from our, from our DNA and from our culture. It's somehow, somehow both. He goes on to say the collective unconscious that constitutes the basis for shared religious mythology is in fact the behavior that we have been generated, transmitted, imitated, and modified by everyone who has ever lived everywhere. Images of these behaviors and of the transcendent place where they occur, the universe of chaos and order, constitute metaphors, symbolic images. Okay, interesting. So the collective unconscious is the, he says, it is the, it is the, um, symbolic representation of uh, the, all of the behavior that's been generated and modified throughout all of the history of life. And that that's something that we can all tap into. Um, you know, we're all just the latest, the latest manifestation of that life, right? So we, so we all have the ability somehow to tap into it. Um, you know, again, it, it is sort of a, of a pheno- phenomenon of the psyche. It's not something that necessarily exists in the world, but it is something that we share. All right, he goes on. Most objects of experience have some properties in common while varying with regard to others. Generally, the similarities and the differences are both significant. We seem peculiarly aware of our differences, however, 
and not of our similarities. I think this is in part because we are not built to focus on the predictable and familiar. Our attention gravitates naturally towards those aspects of our environment that contain information. We're we're information um, foragers, you might say. And, you know, and that, there's a sort of a racist idea that pops up here, which is that uh, um, what Jordan is saying here is that, you know, everything is similar in, to certain things in some ways and different in others. Everything is. That's how that's how we understand things. It goes back to that idea of categorization. Um, he, so he's saying, you know, that, that that's true. But we seem to focus mostly on our differences. That's what I mean when I say that there maybe there's some insights there to do with racism is the idea that uh, that we are structured to to go out and and harvest information and information is to be found in the unfamiliar not not the familiar so we're kind of biologically programmed to notice differences to notice the unfamiliar to notice in this kind of racial context that you look different than me. That's something that might actually be a natural part of the evolution of consciousness, not not just of human beings, but of consciousness of all of all living living creatures. Um, again, I don't want to talk about this exclusively exclusively from a racial component, but I just thought that was interesting. But this does explain the tendency uh, that we have to write off similarities in our mythic stories between cultures and across time. We just we just write them off. Our similarities, you know, aren't important. Let's say so. We just brush them off. Um, but I think that's a big mistake. So it also illustrates that our our instinct for meaning, uh, which compels our consciousness to attend to the unknown, because it's in, it's interesting. You know, when you see something you don't expect, or something new or novel, it, it does grab your attention. It does grip you, as Jordan would say. Um, but you know what I might say is that it hijacks our motivations. So I could be doing something, you know, something intentional, and then something pops up that distracts me, something I didn't expect. Well, what am I doing? I'm not doing the thing that I was trying to do anymore. I'm now immediately focused on this thing that has hijacked my attention. And so that's that's the power of the unknown. It literally is 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 going to hijack your motivation. Uh, and steer you into acting towards it, even if you were doing something intentional that you needed to do and wanted to do. That the unexpected appearance of the unknown, it absolutely hijacks our motivations. We ha- seem to have no choice other than to, other than to respond to it. All right, couple couple more here. Um, Jordan says it is the particulars of our individuality, our specific time and place that differentiate us from one another. What unifies us is the fact of those particulars, the fact that we each have a specific time and place, and the implications of that fact for the nature of our existence. Whoo, boy. So this is something that you might remember we, we had that podcast about a podcast where Jordan was talking to um, Ian McGilchrist, and he used the word thrownness to describe this, which you know, it's a little bit poetic, but I think it's interesting. The idea that we all find ourselves in a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular culture and circumstances, that that is random, you know, we could have been born, you know, in a different era, on a different planet, but we're, but we're born here and now. And this is the, some, something that McGilchrist describes as thrownness. It's just that we've just been thrown into this random, you know, place. 
Um, so I think that's an interesting, interesting concurrence. And Jordan's talking about it in, in exactly, in exactly that way. And he's saying that that's actually the thing that makes us different, obviously. Um, but it's also the thing that makes us the same. And there's, and there's paradoxes like this all throughout. And I, th- and I, it's very important. The idea that all of us find ourselves thrown into a particular time and place, you know, it may be a different time and place for, from everyone else who's ever lived. That that's what makes us different. But those other people too were in a particular time and place. So again, it kind of makes us exactly the same in that way. And the last one here says, we categorize diverse things in similar manners across cultures because we share perceptual apparatus, motivational drive, and emotional state, as well as the structure of memory and physical form manifested in behavior. The imagination has its natural categories, dependent for their existence on the interaction between our embodied minds and the world of shared experience. Into these categories fall particular phenomenon in a more or less predictable manner. So this is this is really important, you know. And this is the most straightforward and obvious. He's he's saying, look, yes, we can compare myths across time and and space uh, if they're similar. Because look, we're similar, guys. It's not that hard. We have a we have a, a shared perceptual apparatus. What does that mean? We all have two eyes. We all have two hands. We all have a nose and a mouth and two ears. We all, you know, sense in the same, basically the same manner. Okay. Um, So if we all experience the world in a similar manner, might all of our stories that come from our experiences sort of flush out in the same way? Kind of seems like it might. And then he goes on to say that our our sensory apparatus, that that's, that, you know, that, is manifested in our behavior. So it's not just that we see the world in a similar way. It's that we behave towards the world in a similar way. Okay. And he goes on to say, he he goes on to say, even in our imagination, the natural categories that we put things into, even those things are based on the embodiment of our minds, which all of us have. Again, that's something we talked about earlier when we were talking about the, uh, in the last episode, the homunculus, right? So we all, we all are structured that way with the same, the same way that our minds embody the world around us. And then our experiences of the world, even those are all similar. They're all the same. We all, you know, are born, we all live, we all die. We all fall in love, you know, all that sort of thing. And he says, into these categories fall particular phenomena in a more or less predictable manner. Of course, I'm going to categorize things um, similarly to any other human being that's ever lived anywhere and at any time because of all of those similarities. And so this is what Carl Jung was getting at with the collective unconscious. And he's talking about categories. He says, look, um, the, the symbols that we that we use to tell the stories about our lives and our existence, that those are structured in, in a hierarchy, as Jordan, as Jordan will point out. And all of that structure is very much, and the categories within that structure are very much similar across the human you know, uh, being, across human being. It doesn't matter the time and the space. So, of course, we're talking about a similar psychology, a similar body, similar experience. So, why, why can we not compare these stories if they're similar? If they're similar, don't you think they're similar for maybe the same reason? Okay, so this is what he's getting at. All right, so let's talk about categorization here. Now, we'll, we'll shift gears. We'll focus on this one. 
something like an instinct for categorization. And I, and I, um, and I call this section differentiation tames the dragon. All right. So here, back to Jordan. He says, as mutable, limited social beings, we are all engaged in a massive cooperative and competitive endeavor. We do not understand the rules that govern this endeavor. We cannot state explicitly why it is that we do what we do. We are all, in consequence, imitating a story that we don't understand. This story is still implicitly contained in our behavior. This containment constitutes our mythology and our ritual and provides the unconscious frames of reference within which our individual stories retain their validity. Wow. So this is interesting. And, I, you know, he points out that, look, you know, life is cooperative and competitive, especially social life. And that's the life that we're familiar with as human beings, that, that we exist in this game that is cooperative and competitive at the same time. And even that reminds me of the fracturing or the bivalence that we talked about before, how every God has a, uh, has a good and a bad manifestation and how even the primordial God, uh, Absu and Tiamat, were, were separated uh, into, into two, that, that that, I said, you know, should trickle down in a fractal manner to, to us, to reality, to what we experience. And this, I think, is what Jordan is saying, uh, that our lives are cooperative and competitive. So even we find ourselves in this situation where we're working together and against one another at the same time. Um, and I think that, that, again, is another fractal example of how, of how that, of how that trickles down from the top to us. Um, and he says that we don't understand the rules of the game. We don't understand the rules of the game of life. He says we can't state explicitly why it is that we do what we do. You know, we don't know, we don't know what the purpose of life is or the meaning of life is. We, we seek after that, but we don't know. We find ourselves in this game, playing this game that we don't understand. And he, and he, he, he illustrates that by saying, we are all imitating a story that we don't understand. And that reminds me of the way he talked about like children um, playing house or something and how the how you could watch little toddlers pretend to be um, a dad or pretend to be a mom or something. And you can hear that maybe the phrases that they say, maybe where something they heard their mom say or their auntie say or their grandma say or something like that. And uh, you can see how these kids are imitating what it means to be an adult. They don't understand what they're doing but they're imitating it. And this is what he's saying we're doing, our lives. We find ourselves playing this game, and we're just imitating a story that we don't understand. We're playing it out in our lives. We're embodying this, this myth. You know, we can read the myth and, and, and see our lives play out exactly as the myth is describing. And he says, this, in the, to describe that, he says, the story is still implicitly contained in our behavior. I love that. I love that because it because it because it points out that that you can know things that you don't understand, and that is so true. And it was such a surprise for me to learn that it you know I it was literally literally mind blowing. Um, the idea that you can act out in your behavior things that you believe without realizing that you believe them. And we talked about that before where we said the ki- the kid the college kid that uh, that that you know um, has a, a high opinion of communism and wants to change the world and you know bring about communist revolution and that guy spends all day uh, researching and writing a, a paper and turns it in and gets a great great grade on it and his 
professor says to him um, that, uh, you know, he did great. You know, his paper about communism was really well researched, really well written. You know, he got an A plus and he said, I have a proposition for you. Um, since you believe this communist stuff so much, you're very enthusiastic about it. How about this? How about you give 30 percentage points of your grade? That, that way you still have a passing score. And then we can distribute those points to all the people that got the worst grades to make to make it a little bit more even. How about that? And the college kid says, fuck that. I spent all weekend writing the paper. I put the work in. It was hard. These guys were lazy. They didn't do it. You know, they didn't, they didn't take it seriously. Well, how, why should I be giving them my points? And the college professor says, I thought you were communist. So again, I hate to repeat that story, but it's a good story. So I don't hate it to repeat it. The point is that, that the college kid is acting out um, much more of a individual freedom, personal responsibility, libertarian type of philosophy all the while claiming to be a communist. And when the professor when the professor put him on the spot and said, "Hey, how about you align your behavior to your beliefs then?" and he and he and he wouldn't do it. And when the truth is, even though he says he believes in communism, he doesn't behave as though he does. So he's not acting it out in his life, and the truth is that he doesn't really believe it. If he believed it, he would be acting it out in his life. He would be embodying the ideas. And so this is this is the same thing Jordan is saying. He's saying, "Look, that we're, we're, we're living these lives we don't understand. We find ourselves imi- imitating a story, uh, and we can tell that by referring to our myths, just like the kids playing house, and that that story is, is contained in our behavior. And all we, have to do is, all we have to do is examine our behavior to figure out what that story is. And he says that, that the containment in our behavior, that that constitutes our mythology and our ritual, and it provides the unconscious frames of reference that make our individual stories valid. Unbelievable. All right, he goes on. The act of categorization enables us to treat the mysterious and complex world we inhabit as if it were simpler, as if it were, in fact, comprehensible. Okay, so that is unbelievably powerful, amazingly important, and I have to explain a little bit. What he's saying here is that the categorizations, um, these are the things that uh, we were talking about in association with the collective unconscious, that these, that these categorizations that we put things in, in our psyche, that we group together, and Jordan explained that, and maybe I haven't made that really clear, but he explained that by saying, uh, by talking about meaning. You remember how he described meaning as implication for action, implication for behavior. So what something means changes how you act. So in some way, what it means is coded in your behavior, and that's what we're talking about here. So you can tell what something means by observing how you, how you react to it or act with it, let's say. It's, it's encoded in your behavior. Um, that that meaning, let's say, that that is one way that we categorize things. So things that have similar meaning, we can, put, we can categorize them together. And that this is something we're doing all the time without really even realizing it. And this is something that uh, constitutes the structure of our of how we categorize things. That's that's something that's common, relatively common among all human beings. And again, that's what Jordan is pointing to the collective unconscious and saying that's the that's the reason why it's it's common. Um, anyway, he's saying here that those categories that they enable us, they enable us to treat the mysterious and complex world as if it were simpler as if it were comprehensible. And again, what he's getting at here is that 
without the ability to categorize things, that the world is, is infinite, um, so complex and mysterious that we cannot even understand it. And this goes back to something that Jordan said, um, not in the book, I don't think, maybe it was, uh, maybe in a lecture, but he was talking about this idea of representation uh, and projection that we've talked about, and I'm, I want to continue to talk about, um, just so I can try to understand it better. But he, he's, he talks about that where he says, look, if you, if you don't project um, a representation of an unknown thing, that you can't encounter that unknown thing. That there's something that's happening automatically. This this I, this this function of representation and projection that's happening in our psyches that allow us to encounter and experience things that we don't understand. Um, and it's it's hard to it's hard to make sense of, but but this is what he's this is what he's explaining. Um, and the the idea that these categories um, allow us to allow us to take something that is that is has infinite meaning, let's say, and and put it into a put it into a bucket with a bunch of other things with with s- similar um, similar meaning to us. That suddenly we can suddenly we can encounter those things, we can explore them, and get and get more information out of them. Let's say, and it, and the critical part of it is that we can't do that at all until we can delimit or differentiate or categorize that. We we have to we have to pretend that it's not as complex as it is somehow so that we can act towards it because as Jordan Peterson likes to say there's an infinite number of facts you have to choose the ones that you want to that you want to use to make your point there's an infinite number of facts so so something has infinite meaning right you have to choose what meaning you want to focus on so that you can do anything with it Otherwise, it just becomes too much. It becomes too much to handle because, because it's infinite. It's again, reality is that Terminator Two substance that that we talked about before. That metal that can become anything. It's infinite meaning. It's infinite potentiality. Or as Jordan says, it's latent information, pure information. Whatever that means. What can we do with that? Fucking nothing. Instead, we have to limit it artificially somehow, so that we can make some sense of it. So that we can make it comprehensible. And we do that through our psyche, through this process of categorization. It's not c- clear what that exactly means, but we'll keep going. Um, now, I think that there is a connection here, a more important connection here, actually, between um, m- taking this uncomprehensible world and making it comprehensible using these categories, you know, using some delimiting, um, you know, force. That this is actually this is actually a description of sort of how I believe the cosmos was created. You know, know, from the mystic experience, what it tells you is that the world is God and God is infinite. Just like we talked about mysterious and complex beyond compare, uh, infinite and unknowable. Um, and it has to represent itself, right? Because God is consciousness. Like we've talked about, it has to represent itself in order to experience because that's what God does. Or excuse me. Consciousness does. Consciousness experiences. And if God is all there is, which is what the mystic experience tells you, then what is it that consciousness is, is experiencing? It's experiencing itself. God experiencing God. How does it do that? The same way we, we just described, through representation. So, I believe that being, that the world that you and I exist in, that the material cosmos that we believe to be the end-all and be-all of reality, that what that is, 
is a metaphor of God. It's a representation of God. It's a way of making God comprehensible to himself, or itself, I should say. And I believe that is what you and I are. That's what being is. We are the thing that understands what we are. Um, so I don't want to get too hippy-dippy uh, on off, off track here, so let's just jump right back in. Uh, Jordan says, we, we perform this act of simplification by treating objects or situations that share some aspect as if they were identical. It is not so simple, however. So he's basically saying, look, categorizing things is not simple. It may seem simple. It's something we just talked about being natural, happening kind of unconsciously all the time so that you can make sense of this infinitely complex world that you live in. Um, so he's saying, look, it's really not not simple. He says, neither the rules that underlie categorization nor the act itself have proved easy to describe. And then he talks about this guy named Roger Brown, who's a psycholinguist. Uh, linguist, and, he, and Roger Brown says, I know you, I know you can tell a dog when you see one. But just try listing the attributes that are true of all dogs and of no cats or wolves or hyenas, or of all carrots and no radishes or turnips, or of all chairs and no small tables, hassocks, benches, or slings. That's a great question. So he's like, look, this this idea of categorization, this thing that's um, happening all unconsciously all the time that kind of allows your your perceptions to be possible, let's say. That, that thing that's happening, we don't even really understand. You know, just try. Just try to ask yourself, what, what is it that a dog, ha- that a dog is, that, that, only, that only a dog is, that, that no cats are, no wolves are, no hyenas are? Try. Try to categorize, try to find a category for dog that doesn't also fit cats, wolves, and hyenas. It's very difficult to do. So, so we have this inborn ability or, or instinct, I would say for categorization. And it, and it seems to be the reason that we have this inborn instinct is because we need it to exist because otherwise the, the world is too complex to, to be manageable. That, that maybe action and life simply wouldn't be possible. Um, and we do, we do that unconsciously without knowing how or why. So we're, we're doing this categorization all the time, simplifying our reality and don't have any idea why or how. We don't understand what it is we're doing. We can't stop it. We can't change or control it. But we embody it. Amazing. We act it out in our being somehow. We are a living representation of the fact of categorization and yet never stop to wonder, just what in the hell are we doing? It's amazing. So we can actually be, um, in, in the similar way we talked about before, an embodiment of the process of categorization. You know, categorization exists, hard to explain, we don't understand it, but and yet we act it out anyway. And the truth of it is there. It can be teased out of our behavior. It can be learned from our behavior. The, that information is coded in our behavior, even if we don't understand what it is we're doing. That is amazing. That is amazing. And I, and I remember we asked the question before, what is information without a knower? Um, and that, that's what comes to my mind here. Um, interesting. All right. So Jordan goes on. Our natural categories, which are the groupings we generate spontaneously, do not consist solely of the consensually apprehensible properties shared by the things and situations we encounter. 
Neither are natural categories tightly bounded. Their borders are fuzzy and they overlap. Okay, so he's saying that, you know, these categorizations we're talking about, that they're not just based on the features that we see. He says the consensually apprehensible properties, just meaning the things that we can all agree on that are true about things. That That's not exactly all it is we're looking at when we're categorizing things. Um, and even so, the categories themselves are not cut and dry, that their borders are fuzzy and they overlap, that there's nothing, there's nothing black and white about categorization. It's very gray and muddy and ununderstood. He goes on, We presume without thinking that we group things as a consequence of something about them rather than as a consequence of something about us. What do all chairs share in common then? It isn't really something about an object considered as an independent thing that makes it a chair. It is rather something about its potential for interaction with us. Our action in the face of an object constitutes the most fundamental of all classifications, the classification from which all abstracted divisions are derived. The category of all things that make you want to run away when you look at them might be considered a very basic form of construct. So again, he, that, that's sort of an allusion to the, the unknown or like the fear that you get when you encounter something unknown. He's saying, look, all things that are like that, that are unknown, you might lump them together in your mind as uh, all things that make you want to run away when you look at them. You know, anything scary, we can lump them all together. Even, even so, they may have nothing else in common. They have that in common. So I can use that as a categorization. So the meaning of an object is really not defined or, or maybe doesn't exist without the existence of the knower. You know, things are understood and categorized as an interrelation between the knower and the known. And again, it calls back to mind that question. What is information without a knower? Jordan says that God, for lack of a better word, is pure information, latent information. What is that without a knower? I don't know. All right, Jordan says, lastly here, it is a classification scheme of this sort that Jung describes as complex, as a complex, one of the elements of the collective unconscious. So a complex is in part a group of phenomena linked together because of shared significance. Now again, remember, that means implication for action. And I think, I think this is how a story becomes a meta story. By, by being linked to a network of meaning that expands the significance of the story tremendously. And so that's how a myth emerges. Um, you know, we're classifying things uh, kind of automatically, uh, subconsciously, let's say. And when we group these things together based upon their meaning, that you might have something that, um, you might, I'm trying to think, Jordan does a great job of like running off examples of these sorts of uh, things, and I'm struggling to do it. But, um, y- you know, you might say, uh, let's see, Okay, like the sun. The sun is a good example. So you would say something like the sun um, has characteristics. It, it's, it pr- produces light. So then you might associate the sun with fire because fire produces light. The sun produces warmth. Again, that's another sh- strength in association with this connection with fire. Um, then, you might also, then you might also think about it as something that, um, something that uh, defeats the night. So, so now maybe it has, um, has some other connotations. You, you might think about it as related to sight. 
you know, light is something that's important for sight. So now, now there's suddenly there's a uh, element of consciousness that gets linked to the idea of the sun, the illuminating, the thing that illuminates, um, the thing that's ever present in the sky, that you know, the all-seeing eye that watches you during the day. You know, that all of these sorts of things um, can get grouped together with the sun, so that the sun is no longer just an orb in the sky, but it's got all of these network of extended meaning associated with it that are all based on how we're categorizing the sun in our in our psyche and 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 connecting it with all of other the other things that have similar uh meaning or implication for for action it's really interesting all right so uh, the next section here is called we are the embodiment of our symbols i want to talk about this uh description that jordan is going to give um, I think it's a great description of something that Kyle and I have called the veil of perception. And, you know, we didn't coin that phrase, obviously it's been around for a long time, but talking about the, dis- the, the distinction between the, our subjective experience and objective reality is that we don't, we don't have any way of knowing whether our perceptions are actually telling us anything about the way the world actually is something Kyle loves to point out. Um, and Jordan describes that, uh, really well. He says this, he says, We cannot see the unknown because we are protected from it by everything familiar and unquestioned. We are, in addition, habituated to what is familiar and known and are therefore unable to apprehend its structure, often even unable to perceive that it is there. Finally, we remain ignorant of our own true nature because we act towards others and ourselves in a socialized, predictable manner and thereby shield ourselves from our own mystery. So this is this is great. Um, he's basically saying here that the unknown is 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 unknown. The reason it's unknown is because we we protect ourselves from it. We avoid exploring it because it's because it's scary. So we pretend in some ways we pretend that it doesn't exist. So long as we're comfortable enough in our in our world that is order, you might say, uh, and, you know, until we need to. And then he says that we're habituated to the familiar, to the known. So even the known, it's like he says, often unable to even perceive it at all. It's like, um, think about our culture. You know, the known is, is, is associated with culture. Uh, the thing that, that we use to protect ourselves from the hardships of nature and the violence of nature, that's, that's order. That's our culture. We get habituated to that, though, and it's almost like it doesn't exist. So it's like, um, it's like uh, you live your life, um, you know, especially if you're a kid and you don't have a lot of uh, uh, social awareness, let's say. You live your life, and every day you're playing, you're you're you know you're eating, you're sleeping, you're living your life, you're going about your day to day. You never stop to realize that you're existing in this structure that's been carefully mapped out and and reinforced and um, expanded, and you were born into it. You know, so the fact that you are safe walking on the streets, the fact that you can go to school every day, you can go to the hospital, you can go to the restaurant, you can go to the library, the fact that you can read and write, the fact that you can speak, every single thing about your existence that I just mentioned, that's something that it's taken for, for granted to such a degree that sometimes it's hard to even believe that it exists. It's like, what is culture? Is it even, is it, does it, is it even a thing? Is it, is, is it doesn't even exist? So that there's a way in which the things that are familiar, the known, are so familiar that we that we aren't even aware of them. So the unknown is clear. You know, it's unknown. We don't know it. 
The known, though, is also such that we kind of ignore it. And then he goes on to say, we're even ignorant of our own nature because we act towards ourselves and others in a predictable manner. That's because of our culture. And that's because we get spanked on the ass when we do things we're not supposed to do when we're growing up so that we react properly. But if we didn't have that, how would we act? We don't have any idea. That's, that's another great thing. He's saying, look, we shield ourselves even from the, our own mystery, from the mystery of ourselves. What is it that we are? You know, our culture prevents us from ever really knowing. So ask yourself, ask yourself this question. Just exactly who would you be if there were no rules? If you were perfectly free to do as you will, what would you be then? How would you behave? You don't even know. You don't even know. So he's saying, he's saying, look, the veil of perception is legit. It's like we live in this world made up of known, unknown, and knower. The unknown is something we, again, we don't know. The known is something we ignore. And, our, and the knower, ourselves, is something that, we, that we're completely ignorant of. We hide from our own selves. Um, you know, maybe intentionally, maybe not. But that all of the components of our, of our reality there's a way of, of understanding them as, as, as being oblique to us. You know, we don't really know them at all. So it's like this fucking mystery we exist in. And uh, let's, let's, let's see how, how else Jordan, uh, what, you know, what direction he goes from here. He says, the figures of myth, however, embody the world visible and invisible. It is through such analysis of the known, the unknown, and the knower that we come to realize the nature of our true being to understand our capacity for great acts of evil and great acts of good and our motivations for participating in them. So when I ask the question, you know, ask yourself how you would behave if there were no rules, if you were free to do whatever you wanted, what, what would you be? You know, who would you be? What would you do? Uh, and, and they said, you know, look, you, you don't know. And he's saying, look, if you've put yourself in a position where you, where you did know, that what you would learn is that we're capable of great acts of good and great acts of evil. That's what we are. The divine son, the knower, that we're, we're this bivalent thing, just like everything else, that's capable of great good and great evil. And that's a, obviously a, a mythological statement if I've ever heard one. All right, uh, let's see, what else? Um, okay, Jordan says... We derive conclusions about the meaning of things we observe. Uh, excuse me. Start over. We derive conclusions about the meaning of things by observing how we respond to them. The unknown becomes classifiable in this manner because we respond to its manifestation predictably. It compels our actions and makes us feel. The unknown is intrinsically interesting in a manner that poses an endless dilemma. It promises and threatens simultaneously. It appears as the hypothetical ultimate source of all determinate information and as the ultimate unity of all currently discernible things. It can therefore be said paradoxically that we know specific things about the domain of the unknown, that we understand something about it, can act towards it, and represent it, even though it has not yet been explored. That this paradoxical ability is a non-trivial capacity, since the unknown constitutes an ineradicable component of our environment. 
Um, and so I, I think the takeaway here is just uh, is just the, the idea that uh, that the meaning of things uh, that 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 really is embodied in how we respond to them. It's embodied. It's something that we can see in our behavior, and that we can classify things that way. So this is this is just an explanation of it. It's how it's by how those things make us feel, and how they mo- motivate us to behave. It's emotion and motivation. Those are the things that we're using to classify things. And that he's saying that it's paradoxical, paradoxical, but it's non-trivial. Like our ability to do that is so important because the unknown constitutes a part of our environment that we can't get rid of. It's always there. It's always something we have to deal with. He goes on to say, mythic reality is the world conceived of in imagination, comprising imagistic representation of the behavioral pattern central to morality played out in an environment characterized by the interplay of the known and the unknown. So the mythic reality is the world conceived in imagination, um, comprised of images of the behavioral patterns central to morality. What does that mean? Okay. He says the pre-experimental man observed morality in his behavior and inferred the existence of a source or rationale for that morality in the structure of the universe itself. So let me say that again. Before, you know, primitive people, before science, before empiricism, people observed morality and behavior in, the, in their own behavior and in the behavior of others. You saw people do things like we talked about before where we said heroic things that people were doing that maybe you, you admired. Um, or, you know, again, just um, fairness and, uh, you know, equality and things like that. You demonstrate those things towards other people. People see those things. They they recognize the value in them and that's it man because value that that's that's super closely tied to morality and that's something that jordan pointed out to me that i never understood in my life up until up until his you know uh his explaining it so he's saying look um human beings observed behavior and they deduced morality from it just just by by how they valued it how how they judged the behavior that they acted out or that they saw other people act out. Was it good? Or was it bad? Was it something that made you feel, you know, positive emotion or negative emotion? Um, so, you know, you look at, you look at those things and you piece out good behavior from what you're seeing around you, whether or not you understand it exactly or not. And he's saying that these early people, when they, when they noticed that there was sort of a right and wrong in terms of behavior that they could, that they could notice, the reason that they were noticing it is because that, that, moral structure is built into the universe. It's, it's not like it's, it's not like it's something between you and I exactly. It's like something that when I demonstrate it, it harmonizes with reality. It's like, oh, I just saw him act in a way that was good. I know that it's good because, uh, you know, it, it corresponds to the structure of reality. Morality is built into the world somehow. So Jordan says, man generated imaginative hypotheses about the nature of ideal human behavior and the archetypal environment. And this archetypal environment is composed of three domains, which easily become three characters. So let's describe the characters now. We've done it before, but we're going to do it in detail. The unknown is unexplored territory, nature, the unconscious, the id, the great mother goddess, the queen, the matrix, the source of all things, the strange, the foreigner, the belly of the beast, the dragon, the evil stepmother, the deep, the cave, 
hell, death, and the grave. The moon, the ruler of night and the mysterious dark. Uncontrollable emotion. So all that stuff associated with the unknown. And you can see in mythology, especially when I talk about the evil stepmother, that should pop right out to you, that that how the, the you know chaos, how the unknown is represented in our stories are all of these things. So if you encounter these sorts of things in your dreams, if you, if you see them in myths and stories, um, this is what it's referring to. And you get the idea that I was bringing up earlier about these categories. So if I have something like the unknown and I'm putting things into the category that make me feel that way or that make me act in the same way, all of these things I can lump together into the unknown and I, and I create this map, this matrix of web of meaning that are associated with the unknown and suddenly the unknown isn't just an, one instance of an, of an unknown thing, it's a meta-unknown. It's the class of all things that are unknown and they, and they continue to get more and more characteristics associated with them. So again, nature, the unconscious, the mother goddess, the strange, the source of all things, the evil stepmother, the dragon, the cave, hell, all of these things are part of that web that are associated with the unknown, that web of meaning, map of meaning, you might say. All right, the knower. The knower is the creative explorer, the ego, the I, the I, E-Y-E, the phallus, uh, that's a penis for those of you who don't know Latin or Greek or wherever that comes from. The subject, the consciousness, the illuminated or enlightened one, the trickster, the fool, the hero, the coward, the son, the son of the great mother and great father. So these are all, again, the web of meaning associated with the knower. And when you see these sorts of images in myths, you know, the trickster comes to mind. That's Loki. That's the coyote from Native American mythology. When those characters show up, um, this is that, that one of those bivalent forms of the knower appearing in your story, the thing that you are. And then lastly, the known. This is explored territory, culture, the superego, the conscious, the king, the wise old man and the tyrant, the giant, the ogre, order and authority and the crushing weight of tradition, dogma, the day sky, the island, ancestral spirits and the activity of the dead. Whew. Okay, so I'm just looking at things like the island. So when we're talking about the known, you can picture an island, okay? So you see this little bit of land poking out over the, um, over the infinite, you know, expanse of sea and we know that sea i've said before many times that that sea especially the ocean the infinite you know expanse of 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 sea that that represents the unconscious so you've got this island this little piece of land poking up through the through the unconscious through the ocean the ocean is the great mother it's chaos and here you have this little bastion of land poking out of the chaos. You have this little, this little spot of order in the middle of this island of chaos. So this is why the island even falls into that. And then he says, ancestral spirits and the activity of the dead. And so that's something that should remind you of culture. You know, if you're one of those people that believes, um, you know, that that uh, that the that the deceased are sort of still. Um, Influencing the material world, let's say, if you're one of those people that, that believes that's possible, um, the activities of the dead, you know, wh whatever it is that the dead are doing in the afterlife, that even those sorts of things um, are, are, you know, 
uh, effectual in, in the world. And even they will get looped into this idea of culture. You know, the, the people that in my tribe that lived before me, they represented the culture before me. They helped build the culture before me. That's the activities of the dead. The activities of the dead are the culture that was built, that was handed to you when you were born. Interesting. All right, so he says, uh, he goes on to say that meaning transforms itself endlessly with shift in interpretive context um, is determined in part by that context, by the, by the story. And so here, here I'm just, I just want to point out that all of these words that we're bringing into this web uh, associated with the unknown, the known, and the knower, um, you can see how they're fleshing out into these more like interesting uh, components of stories. Um, what Jordan is saying here, though, is that all of the different connections between all these different words in the web, that how you look at them and how you order them and how you, you know, like I said before, there's an infinite number of facts. You have to choose the ones you want to you want to focus on. You can't you can't focus on all the facts. It's impossible. So here you, you're going to focus on only certain ones. You're going to choose them. So that's your context. That's the story that you're telling. He's saying that that transforms the meaning so that these all of these things we're talking about, you know, explored territory, culture, the giant, the ogre, the tyrant, that all of these things could, could have different meaning if looked upon in a different way. And so this is just a, another illustration of that fractal nature of, of reality, that even the meaning of things is, is infinitely malleable. You know, there's infinite meaning even in the known. And all you have to do is change your perspective to change the meaning, and that's something that's, something that's done by consciousness. And that's Marduk, who we're going to talk more about here very soon. All right, so Jordan says, The unknown cannot be described. By definition, the known is too complicated to be understood. The knower, the conscious individual human being, likewise defies his own capacity for comprehension. So this, this is something we talked about a, a little bit already. Uh, he says, The interplay between these ultimately unfathomable forces nonetheless constitute the world in which we act, uh, to which we must adapt. Fair enough. The great mother and father, the world parents, unexplored and explored territory, nature and culture, can be usefully regarded as the primordial offspring of primeval chaos, the ultimate source and destination of all things. So he's just saying, look, we're talking about the known and the unknown, chaos and order. Um, we can tell a story about them. We can pretend as though chaos and order are embodied gods, the great mother and father, Tiamat and Apsu, let's say, uh, and that we can usefully regard um, their, uh, their offspring. Um, uh, I lost my train of thought there. The, uh, the world parents, unexplored and explored territory, nature, and culture, he says, can be usefully regarded as the primordial offspring of primeval chaos, so that the great mother and father themselves, you might think about them as the children of the Ouroboros. And so again, now now we're seeing a story start to take form, even though, you know, until we put them in, you know, sort of anthropomorphic form, until we put them in these pretend figures, uh, it was way more abstract and hard to think about. Now we're talking about them in terms of stories, um, stories that we that we're familiar with, you know, uh, parents and children. He goes on, the archetypal son is the child of order and chaos, and is therefore clearly their product. So he's saying, look. Chaos and order had sex to create the archetypal son. Uh, he's their son. He came from them. Then he goes on to say, paradoxically, however, 
as the deity who separates the earth, mother, from the sky, father. He is also the process that gives rise to his parents. All right, so you remember, um, you remember Apsu and Tiamat were, were together, and then, and the story goes that uh, that they were that they were separated. Uh, you know, chaos and order were separated, um, and that 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 the, sep- the the force that separated them was was the thing that they gave birth to, Mar- Marduk in this case. So 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 you the, the paradox he's talking about here is that is that the primordial gods create the sun, their, their, their sun, S-O-N, and that their sun is the one that separates them into two distinct things. So they didn't exist as two distinct things before they had the sun. Their sun separated them and made them into two distinct things. So you have this paradox. They created their sun, and their sun created them. This is the paradox. Very interesting. So he says the paradoxical paradoxical situation arises because the existence of defined order and the unexplored territory can come into being only in the light of consciousness, the knower. Right? What is information without the knower? I keep asking. And what he's saying here is that order, that unexplored territory and explored territory, that they only exist with the knower. The knower is the one that turns the unexplored into the explored. The, the, the knower is the one who gets to know that there is unexplored. He gets to encounter it, and he gets to turn into the explored. So without him, there is, there is no acknowledgement of the unknown, and there is no known. This is the paradox. So what I find interesting about this is that the mystic, um, is that the insight from the mystic experience, that everything is one, that resolves the paradox. You know, by recognizing that the unknown... The known and the knower are actually one. They're the Ouroboros. They're all together. So when these forces um, are understood as one thing, the idea that that part of itself, the knower, acts upon itself to separate uh, unique, defined you know, gods out of the oneness, out of the wholeness, it's not a paradox. It's just separation as the act of creation. We're not talking about creating anything. We're talking about separating out from the one thing that already exists. So the paradox goes away. Uh, also, uh, this understanding removes the need for Jordan to speak of chaos in two separate ways, like he did earlier in the earlier in the conversation. Um, the matrix that created and surrounds the world of the known and the unknown, and as the unknown itself, um, they don't have to be unique forces here. They're 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 the same thing. They're the Ouroboros. They've just been separated out into these unique individual things. And again, that that differentiation, that act of separation, that is what brings, that's what makes being possible. That's the act of creation. All right, so uh, Jordan says, all positive things are reasonably apprehended as similar or identical. All negative things, um, likewise. It is for this reason in part that the terror of the unknown, the tyranny of the state, and the evil aspect of, of man are contaminated with one another. For this reason, for this reason, uh, that the devil and the stranger are easily perceived as one. So here he's just talking, uh, he's explaining about those categories again, saying that when you link things together based upon how they make you feel or, or uh, you know, how they motivate you to behave, um, that those things all get contaminated with each other because they, because they mean the same thing. So that's how they're associated with each other, and he and he gives the example that, you know that that's why the the you know a stranger is somebody who's um, oftentimes um, 
uh, looked upon, um, you know, as a danger. So a stranger shows up in a small town like Rambo, like John Rambo. Cops aren't treating him well. Uh, the stranger is seen as something that's uh, that's dangerous. And he goes on to say each each con- uh, constituent element of experience can be regarded as progenitor or as offspring with regard to any other. As the world parents give birth to the divine son, as the divine son separates the world parents, as order is derived from chaos and chaos is defined by order. So he's saying all of these characters, the known, the unknown, and the knower, that they can be regarded as 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 the thing that gives birth gives birth to the others, but also they can be seen as the thing that is the offspring of the others at the same time. Now, that is a paradox. It's designed to make you scratch your head. Um, I think that when you scratch your head on that, what you're going to find is the same intuition that you get from the mystic experience. The, par- why are, the paradox exists to bring your attention to the oneness, to the Ouroboros, to the fact that the chaos and order and consciousness, that the, all of those things are one. All right, Jordan adds that archaic theories of creation, so creation myths, attempted to account for the existence of the world as experienced in totality, which means including meaning and not for the isolated fact of the material world. So this is not a scientific theory. Myth is designed to give an explanation for the things that exist, but also for what they mean. So Jordan says, the world brought into being in archaic myths of creation is phenomenological rather than material. It includes all aspects of experience, including those things we now regard as purely subjective. Ancient stories of, of the generation of the world, therefore, focus on all aspects of reality rather than on those uh, distant and abstracted aspects we regard as purely objective. And then he, and then he quotes another guy, uh, Northrop Fry, who uh, talks about the Enuma Elish as well. And he summarizes it a little bit and we're going to do that in more detail in a minute, but I'll just go ahead and read this to you. So Fry says in the Babylonian creation hymn, Enuma Elish, the God of the freshwater, Apsu, the great father, was killed by his widow, Tiamat, the great mother, goddess of the salt water. Marduk, the champion of the gods, killed her and split her in two, creating heaven out of one half and earth out of the other. Similarly, the creation in Genesis begins with a firmament separating the waters above from the waters below, but succeeding a world that was waste, in Hebrew it's tohu, and void, with darkness on the face of the deep, in Hebrew that's tehom. And he says, though Hebrew words are etym- etymologically cognate, they mean the same thing, he says, uh, as Tiamat. So Tohu and Tehom in the Bible, which mean, you know, the, the place that th- there are descriptions of what the world was before God brought everything into being. It was called, it was called um, the, the void and the deep, Tohu and Tehom. And both of those words mean the same thing as Tiamat. Now remember, the Hebrews and the um, and the uh, uh, the Sumerians were um, um, they were Semitic people. They had they had um, you know uh, related languages and cultures. So it doesn't surprise me at all. But the idea here is that when the Book of Genesis describes the world being created, that even even the Hebrew words that were used, those go back to this same root as this dragon of chaos from Sumeria, Tiamat. So he says, the Hebrew words are etymologically cognate with Tiamat, and there are many other allusions in the Old Testament to the creation as a killing of a dragon or a monster. So 
So apart from the fact of the connection between the Enuma Elish and uh, Genesis, the notion that uh, the primordial forces, the great mother and the great father, they were both represented by water. So if you, I don't know if you picked up on that. Um, so Apsu is the fresh water and Tiamat is the salt water. And they get separated, obviously. That, that, you know, we've, we've talked about that. But what we haven't talked about is the idea that both Apsu and Tiamat are represented by water. Fair enough, different kinds of water. You might say they're bivalent. There's two types of water, right? The salt water and there's fresh water. Um, and so the Ouroboros you know, was originally Tiamat and uh, Apsu together, so just water. And they get separated out now into salt water and fresh water. And I can't help but point out a few things. Water, again, is a symbol of the unconscious. The unconscious is something I believe to be, um, I believe to be, well, um, I believe it to be God. I believe it to be consciousness. I, I believe, I believe it to be, a, you know, again, I don't want to get bogged down, maybe, maybe, a you know, a way of looking at consciousness, um, that, you know, that consciousness itself is, is sort of a combination of the conscious and the unconscious. So that, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's just hard to, hard to come up with the words on the spot. But that water, again, is a representation of the unconscious. The unconscious, what I believe, is where, um, you know, is where uh, being comes from. Um, so Apsu and Tiamat are different representations of the same thing. They're both water. They're sort of the bivalent now, the, the differentiated water broken into two. Um, and, and to me, I think that the important point is both of them um, are water. They're both one thing, Tiamat and Apsu, chaos and order. They're one thing, and that is what the mystic experience tells you. Uh, and, and, and again, what the Anuma Elish tells you in this case, um, the freshwater uh, Apsu and the saltwater Tiamat. All right, next section here. What makes a god... Transpersonal or supernatural? That's the that's the title of this section here. So Jordan says that the pre-experimental mind could not reliably discriminate between the object and its effect on behavior. It is that the object and effect, which in totality constitute a god. So this is the idea here: is that if something has meaning, it has implication for action. Something that something that you encounter makes you want to makes you want to act a certain way or it makes you want to feel a certain way. He's saying that that's not something you have control over exactly, right? If something makes you act a certain way or makes you feel a certain way and you, it wasn't something that you wanted, it just happened to you, you can start, start to see how something that, something that you don't control that makes you feel and act a certain way, that's sort of starting to sound like a supernatural force that exists outside of you an invisible supernatural force that exists outside of you that makes you th feel and act uh, against your against your will, you might say. Um, and, and, so, and so this is what he's saying. That's why, that's why the idea of these supernatural disembodied forces or gods, um, you know, originally came, came to be considered at all is that when you recognize um, that you, you know, that you feel, lustful or angry, let's say, those are always always good go-tos that are overwhelming emotions, that those things sort of take over and that you, you oftentimes find yourself acting in ways that are against, you know, what you want or how you would act if you weren't possessed by those emotions. So something makes you feel that way and you can easily imagine that, that there's a, a supernatural force or God that's possessing you, you know, something like that. 
So Jordan says, such a representation is an undifferentiated mix of subject and object, of emotion and sensory experience, transpersonal in nature. The primitive deity nonetheless serves as accurate representation of the ground of being because it is the primordial experience rather than mere primordial thing. Okay, so there's a so there's a undifferentiated mix of subject and object, meaning that when it, when an object or an, or a situation makes you act a certain way or feel a certain way, there's some part of you that's involved in that as well. Subject and object are involved in in this experience. So you so yourself and God, let's say you're you're linked in some way that's hard to describe. Um, so the mystic description of Godhood involves consciousness, you know, uh, experience, as Jordan says. I think I just point, want to point that out, you know, that which experiences. And he goes on to say here, um, where did I go? Let's see. Okay. He says, um, the gods should therefore be regarded as embodiments of the transpersonal interpsychic phenomenon that give rise to human motivations, as well as those aspects of the world that activate those inner psychic systems. So this is just another way of saying, look, um, you've got this, you've got this infrastructure, this psychic in- infrastructure in your in your mind and in your body. Let's say that's similar to everybody else's, just like we've talked about before. So you're going to react similarly to the world, to certain aspects of the world, as everybody else. You're all, you, you, you know, we're all going to experience um, similar emotions surrounding them. We're all going to, uh, you know, um, have our, our behavior modified, um, you know, in a similar ways when we have those those encounters. So all of that stuff is it seems to transcend individuals. It seems to be true among everyone. And so this is what this is why the world the word transpersonal comes up. It's like you have a force like lust or anger that everybody feels at some point in, in time. So you can imagine like this, like this um, cloud, this invisible cloud of rage that's just floating around, you know, your your neighborhood. And every time it passes through you, you feel that rage, and then it passes through somebody else, and they feel that rage. This is this is sort of the image that people that people thought, um, th- you know, uh, that those sorts of emotions uh, existed outside of the self, that, and that they that they influenced people indiscriminately. It could be you, it could be your neighbor, it could be today, it could be tomorrow, but at some point you're all going to be subject to the to the will of the gods. Um, and so, again, Jordan's going to call them transpersonal psychic phenomenon, things that, that are just happen to be the same in, in our brains because we're all human beings, but that if you don't look at it that way, it would be easy for you to think that they're outside of you and that they're, you know, imposing themselves on you and you can see it happening to you and you can see it happening to strangers all around you. And it's like, Jesus, there's this invisible force around here, you know, uh, this, this succubus or demon or something that's, that's making us all angry, something like that. Um, he says that the Sumerians considered themselves destined to clothe and feed such gods because they viewed themselves as the servants, in a sense, of what we would call instinctive forces elicited by the environment. Okay, so you think about like classical religions and, uh, you know, people going to the temples and bringing gifts, you know, money and food and sacrifices and burning things on the altar and all that sort of thing. So you can understand people did clothe and feed the gods. That's what they did. 
That happened for a long stretch of human history. That's how we treated the gods in this symbolic manner, literally feeding and clothing and taking care of them and visiting them and keeping their rituals alive and keeping their spirits alive. That's what we thought we were doing with our religions. Um, And that we viewed ourselves as their servants for the same reasons that I mentioned uh, earlier about this transpersonal nature of of these these, um, psychic phenomenon. That when you consider them to be affecting people all around you and yourself indiscriminately and nobody has any power to control it or cause it or stop it that clearly that supernatural power is coming from some some place outside of me it's more powerful than me than me it can impose itself on me and i can't on it so the position i'm in is of a as a of a servant i'm a servant of the gods and uh you know you can imagine if you get possessed by rage you absolutely are the servant of that god if you get possessed, possessed by lust and over and overwhelmed by that feeling, you are absolutely the servant of that God. All right. Such forces can be reasonably regarded as deities inhabiting a super celestial place, extant prior to the dawn of humanity. Erotic attraction, for example, a powerful God has a developmental history that predates the emergence of humanity, is of terrible power, and has an existence transcending that of any individual who is currently possessed. Pan, the Greek god of nature, produced or represented fear. So you guys know the word panic. That comes from that Greek god. Ares or the Roman Mars, warlike fury and aggression. We no longer personify such instincts, so we don't think of them as existing in a place like heaven, for example. But the idea that such instincts inhabit a space and that wars occur in that space is a metaphor of exceeding power and and explanatory utility. So this is interesting. The idea that, that instincts inhabit a space and, 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 and do battle and make war, you know, that's something that we see in myth all over the place. You know, we see that in the, in the Western tradition, you know, in like Armageddon, like that there's a, a prophesied time when the forces of good, the angels and God, and the forces of bad, the devil and demons, that they're going to they're gonna have it out and they're going to have a battle. And that those forces, those supernatural forces, are just the same. The angels and the demons, just like you imagine from the cartoon, the one on one shoulder and one on the other, that these are transpersonal psychological forces that are literally doing battle. The battleground is your, your psyche. And we have those stories written out like Armageddon or Ragnarok from the Viking mythology where the Asir and the Vanir are doing battle at the end of time. Um, or any story about, about a god, Thor and Loki doing battle, you know, anything like that, that what this is really a story of are the psychological forces that are struggling with one another within yourself. Amazing, amazing. He goes on, transpersonal motive forces do wage war with one another over vast spans of time, are each forced to come to terms with their powerful opponents in the interpsychic hierarchy. The battles between different ways of life that eternally characterize human societies can usefully be visualized as combat undertaken by different standards of value and therefore by different hierarchies of motivation. Uh, The forces involved in such wars do not die as they are immortal, human beings acting as pawns of the gods. And that's true, I mean... Lust and and rage are immortal. As long as there are people, there will be lust and rage. So you can see how they would be viewed as a god in that way. 
But what struck me as so powerful from this, and I, it just made me wonder. So we've been talking about a lot about being embodied and information being embodied and how, you know, even our bodies, our, uh, our, our brains, um, the homunculus sort of embodies our body and our brain. So there's all this stuff about embody, embodiment and sort of acting out our beliefs and, and that latent information that we talked about, that thing that we're calling God or that Jordan might call God, that that stuff is somehow uh, decipherable from our behavior. It's encoded and latent in our behavior, almost like we're symbols of God, you know, like, we're, like we are embodiments of the information that God is, something crazy like that. Um, but the idea, the, the idea of considering embodied information... You know, he's, and he's saying that there are wars, you know, between these transpersonal, transpersonal forces playing out in our minds. Um, and he says that, uh, that, the, that the battles between different ways of life um, that eternally characterize human societies, that they can be visualized as combat, like, like the same kind of mythological combat. And I'm wondering, like, how many wars that actually played out in, on, on Earth, you know, the, the Crusades and, and all this sort of thing, like all of that stuff. You know, might that might that have happened as embodiments of these of these ideas, right? Like the ideas are doing war, and and human beings are actually physically are physically playing out that battle. We're literally killing each other to determine whether an idea is going to survive or not. It's just amazing, just considering that history might actually be the embodiment of sort of a psychological development. Jesus, man, unbelievable. All right, all right. Okay, final section, guys. Back to the Enuma Elish. That's what this one's called. All right, so this will be this will be the home stretch here. We're going to talk more specifically about this myth. I know we've been doing it obliquely. I wasn't sure, you know, if I should kind of write out the whole myth in the beginning or not, but we've kind of been bouncing around a little bit, so you guys get the idea or the gist. So now we're going to get into the to the specifics. All right, so Jordan opens up. He says, the undifferentiated pre-cosmogonic egg, you know, this is the Ouroboros. This is the, the thing that Tiamat and Apsu came from, or the thing that was their union, let's say. Um, he says that that is a common metaphor in other creation myths, something that we see lots of places. Um, so that this pre-cosmogonic egg it contains an alloy of order, um, the masculine principle, and, and of chaos, the feminine principle. Same thing you see in the yin-yang symbol that we've talked about before. Uh, this alloy is the world parents, the great mother and father, Tiamat and Apsu in this case, locked in creative embrace. So their oneness, that, that's seen as a sexual union, as a generative and creative thing. Uh, Jordan says it's spirit and matter conceived alternatively still as one thing. Spirit and matter seen as one thing. I love that because that's not something Jordan has said that straightforwardly. But when he says spirit and matter uh, seen as one thing, and he's referring to Tiamat and Apsu, what he's really saying is chaos and order seen as one thing. Uh, and that, I believe, is consistent completely with the mystic experience. So just pointing it out. All right, so Tiamat and Apsu's union gives rise to children, as we've talked about, because them being together means something like they're having sex, so they're they're just churning out, you know, churning out gods. Those gods are the primordial instincts or forces of life, who in turn engender more individualized beings. So so they're, they're going to continue to make make more gods or whatever whatever those things are that eventually become the the cosmos. 
So their union populates the world with the forces that give rise to the rest of reality, you know, their children. From the mystic perspective, their union is the, is, it's the fractal miracle, uh, the miracle of self-experience. And the creation of the rest of being in this respect are simply the differentiated representations that continue to emerge without end from the union of consciousness with itself, self-consciousness. So the union of Tiamat and Apsu. Um, the same process that gave rise to the gods and the, the forces of nature, um, that's what gives rise to all of being. And that process is eternal. It just keeps just keeps happening. You know, that's that's the intuition from the, the mystic experience. That's what the fractal image is supposed to represent, this endless churning out of new being. All right, so these elder gods, the, the forces of nature that we talked about, um, Jordan says that their incessant racket and movement disturbs the inner parts of Tiamat. And that's how the Anuma Elisha puts it, disturbs the inner parts of Tiamat. So Tiamat and Apsu conspire to devour their children. So you, again, you can think about the battle of the gods happening here, the old gods going after the new gods. Um, and, and that, again, being an illustration maybe of, of just these competing psychological forces within our, own, within our own psyches. They're always doing battle. So this is a common mythological occurrence. You know, we talked about Kronos eating the Olympians. Uh, we talked about the Asir and the Veneer, the, the different races of gods doing battle with each other. Uh, and then Jordan says that that uh, that that's all also echoed in the story of Yahweh, Noah, and the flood. So it's like, hey, man, this story comes right out of the Bible as well. The god, the gods decide they have to destroy everything. Well, that's what happened with with Noah. You know, with with uh, God and the Noah story. The gods give birth to the cosmos, but ceaselessly attempt to destroy it. So this is the mythological encapsulation of the of the greatest existential fact, as far as I'm concerned, um, that of entropy. So everything's always temporary. It's always breaking down and 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 being destroyed. Things that are born always die. You know. I, I you know I th- I think that having that having that formalized in a myth like like Noah and the Flood, especially if it's happening over and over and over again, you're having m- multiple stories like that show up in your religious traditions of destruction and rebirth, let's say, um, that the reason that those stories exist in myth is because, like I said, that's that's the greatest existential fact. That's what's going to happen to you um, the most in, in, in your life. It's an unavoidable fact that uh, things are temporary, that things are always transforming and changing. What, you know, what comes must go. And, uh, and so having a story like, like the, like the gods being so upset with their creation that they're willing to destroy it, that paints a picture for, for why everything is, is eventually destroyed, including yourself, something like that. So now he, he talks about E, which is a god, and it's one of those elder gods that were created from Tiamat and Apsu. It says, uh, E catches wind of his parents' plot to, to kill the, you know, the rest of the gods, um, and and he decides to kill Apsu. He's like, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let Tiamat and Apsu. I'm not gonna let mom and dad come and kill me and all my brothers and sisters. I'm just gonna go ahead and kill kill uh, Apsu first before he kills me. And then shortly afterwards, um, shortly afterwards, uh, Tiamat gives birth to Marduk, the hero of of our story, the wisest of the gods, uh, the sun god. So Marduk is characterized by the metaphoric associates of consciousness. Jordan says. He has exaggerated sensory capacities, 
So he, he, what he's referring to is Marduk is described as having four large ears and four eyes that see everything. So he's got more ears and eyes than ordinary people, and he sees and hears everything. He's like the all-seeing eye. He's consciousness. He's that which knows. That's Marduk. So he's, he's got all of these characteristics that make him a representation of consciousness. Jordan says his very words are creative and destructive power uh, by the transforming capacity of fire. So what's said about Marduk is that his lips, when his lips moved, fire blazed forth. He is the sun god above all, which means that he occupies the same categorical space as sight, vision, illumination, enlightenment, and the death of the night. So those are all things we were talking about before when we were talking about categorization and how we kind of create these webs of meaning with things that are related and that have uh, related meaning. And so somebody like Marduk, somebody like uh, a representation of consciousness, could become associated with the sun, which is why he's the god of the sun. But also things like sight, vision, enlightenment, and the death of the night, and all of the stories that you could tell about Marduk, um, you know, to paint that picture. So I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here. Um, so at this point, uh, Tiamat's super pissed. You know, not only did she, um, you know, want to kill all of her children, but now she finds out her husband is dead. She goes ballistic. She raises an army. And what, what, what I mean is she creates um, uh, terrible monsters. She raises an army of all the destructive powers um, to get revenge uh, against the gods that, that she created. Um, this part of the story is also common in other mythology. It provides an explanation for the existence of malevolence, death, uh, natural disasters, disease, famine, deterioration, all that kind of thing that, that people generally dislike. All the breaking down of order and the sort of undeserved uh, pain and, 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 and uh, strife. Uh, it also, however, seems to illustrate that the gods, uh, both good and bad, the monsters and the demons, exist in the world if not explicitly within us, and constantly contend and do battle with one another towards a new order or a new balance. Okay? All right, so back to Jordan. It is the known, so remember this is Apsur, the god of order, that serves as protection from the unknown, Tiamat. Whether this is understood or not, E kills Apsu. He kills order, which means that he unconsciously strips himself of protection. E might therefore be reasonably regarded as representative of that part of, of humanity eternally and ignorantly contemptuous of tradition and willing to undermine or destroy the past without understanding its necessity. So again, here the idea is that the god E kills his dad, the god of order, and doesn't realize that by killing order, he's, he's opening himself up and the rest of the world up to the full force of Tiamat, all of that destructive capability that this primordial goddess has. You know, they're really, really opened up Pandora's box this time. Uh, and he's saying that the story of E doing that, of killing order and opening himself up to all these terrible things and opening up every, you know, all of reality to all these terrible things, that what that is is something like the meta story about the the nihilist you know you can imagine like jordan would bring up the columbine shooters or something um some somebody who um is willing to tear down uh culture because they feel like it's 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 flawed it's holding them down uh it's the reason for their you know for their failure for their for their unhappiness or whatever and that those people um those people will thoughtlessly tear down um and destroy tradition 
um, and institutions and, uh, you know, culture because they don't see the value in it and they don't ever think far enough down the line to realize that the culture is way more than just the things that they're pissed about and getting rid of it, doing away with it, like Nietzsche said, is going to, you know, the death, the death of God that Nietzsche talked about. Uh, there's not ever going to be enough water to wash away the blood. What are you going to do when you pull the rug out from under you, when you get rid of order? And this is what, uh, this is what the story of E and Apsu is supposed to be a meta story of. You know, you hear this story and then you watch out in your own life for the moments when you're, when you're thoughtlessly willing to throw order under the bus without thinking about what that might mean. All right, I'll paraphrase a little bit more for the story. So the gods then send one after another to fight Tiamat, like we talked about earlier, but none of them can stop her. Um, she's coming for all of them with her army of monsters, and none of these gods, one by one, can do anything to stop her. In desperation, Marduk is asked to try his hand. And remember, he's the newest of the of of the of the gods. Um, it says after uh, even after seeing his brothers and sisters uh, fall, trying to to defeat Tiamat. He, he, he voluntarily agrees to go after her. Now, remember, he, he gets something you know, in the bargain. He gets to be the king of the gods if he does this. Um, but he goes uh, to fight Tiamat. Um, okay, so then Jordan, Jordan point, points out um, that Marduk becomes king of the gods. He says that this is an example of the hierarchical, hierarchical organization of the gods, a concept frequently encapsulated in mythology. He says, uh, the elder gods, you know, the psychological forces, the deities that eternally rule or constitute human motivation. Um, the question of the proper ordering of those forces, who or what should rule, is the central problem of morality and the primary problem facing uh, human individuals and social organizations. He says that the Sumerian solution to this problem was the elevation of Marduk, the sun god, who voluntarily faces chaos to the position of king. Okay, so imagine this. The classical gods represent um, instinctual forces or motivational forces. Um, they're all doing battle in your head all the time. You know, there's a part of you that, that you know, gets hungry and wants to eat, you know, put everything else to the side and wants to eat. There's a part of you that gets horny and wants to put everything aside and have sex. There's a part of you that, that you know, is planning for tomorrow and, and uh, you know, wants to work and is putting everything else aside to get the work done. And all of these forces are struggling in your head at the same time trying to trying to come up with a, with a st- stable, you know, order. And that's a hierarchy. Somebody's got to be on top. Um, and we're all doing that battle in our heads, um, trying to figure out what force is going to rule. And in the in the myth, uh, Anuma Elish, it's Marduk who's who's given that privilege to determine destinies to be the king of the gods. Marduk is consciousness. So the idea here is that you that you are consciousness. You are the thing that can subdue all of the other forces that are active in your psyche, and you can rule over them. And the story of Marduk is telling you that. So Jordan says, The Enuma Elish states essentially, when things are normal, any god might rule. However, in the case of true crisis, everyone turns to the sun god, the embodiment of consciousness. Perhaps it is reasonable to presume, therefore, that he should always reign supreme. The formulation of this hypothesis was a work of unsurpassed genius and a decisive move in the history of the Western mind. 
So he's saying this is not small potatoes. The story of the Enuma Elish that goes back to the beginning of Western civilization, that this part of it, this idea that Marduk should be the king of the gods, that that idea might actually be the thing that slingshotted the, the Western civilization into into modernity. It might have been the thing that allowed the, you know, the uh, Fertile Crescent in the in the Tigris Euphrates Valley, where, you know, where these ancient civilizations first started, what allowed them to flourish and to continue and to become the thing that, the culture that we exist in today. Amazing. All right, here's a quote from the Anuma Elish. Marduk, thou art the most important among the great gods. Thy destiny is unequaled. To exalt in a base. This shall be thy power. None among the gods shall infringe upon thy prerogative. All right, so this is the gods basically saying um, to Marduk that he's he's been elected king of the gods, uh, that he, you know they want him to go out and kill uh, Tiamat, and they're going to put all their support behind him. And what they say to him is that to exalt and abase shall be thy power. And that caught my attention because Marduk is supposed to be Consciousness. So, what is the power of consciousness? In this case, it's to exalt and abase. What does that mean? So, consciousness gets to determine what gets to be perpetuated into the future, what gets to exist. We do this by choosing or selecting what is worth preserving by making a value judgment, whether it's good or evil. What we exalt, the good, that's what gets to exist. What we abase, the bad, we work to undo or subdue. Another way of conceptualizing how we make the world. Uh, and it's just a really interesting way of painting that story. Marduk gets the power to exalt and abase. He gets the power to determine destinies. Again, Marduk is a symbol of consciousness. And what consciousness does is determine destinies. Unbelievable. All right. All right, so... At this point, Marduk gathers his armaments. He's got a bow, a club, and lightning. And he sets himself ablaze, and he fashions a net to enclose Tiamat. So that first, that first sentence there is just so packed. So first of all, the image is awesome. You've got this god that represents consciousness, and he's got the bow and the club and lightning. So he's like Zeus with a lightning bolt in his hand. But he's like Johnny Blaze, too. He's just on fire. You know, he's the, sun, he's the god of the sun, so you can imagine. But I'm just imagining this just heroic, you know, warrior, this ancient warrior with all of his, his, his weapons and his magical weapons, you know, his lightning bolt in his hand, and he's just on fire, and he's just racing towards Tiamat, just snarling and screaming, and he's got this net that he's going to use to enclose her. He needs to find a way of capturing Tiamat, and that's super, super important. The symbol, obviously, in the story of, of a net to enclose Tiamat, what is that? So you remember, Tiamat is infinite potentiality. Tiamat is the chaos that all things can come from. She's infinite and terrible. So how do you subdue her? You have to make the infinite finite. You have to find a way to put a net around this infinite thing and to contain her. This is very important, so let's hang on to that idea. So he goes on, he says, He is master of fire and armaments, which is to say a master of the technology that serves most fundamentally to transform the unknown and terrifying world into the comforting, productive, and familiar. So he's just saying, look, you know, Marduk, he's got... He's got the bow, the club, lightning and fire, and a net. He's got all of these things that human beings used 
to tame the wild into a place that we can live in. You know, we use fire to protect ourselves from animals and to keep ourselves warm. You know, uh, weapons and implements we used for hunting and fishing and protecting ourselves and all that sort of thing. Until we had that, until we had that culture, um, you know, we, we, we were sitting ducks. So Marduk represents, you know, the, uh, the symbol of that, uh, the thing that we use to create, to create culture. Consciousness. Unbelievable. All right, so he says... Um, he is able to bind the unknown, to limit its fear, sphere of action, and to bring it under control. He raises the winds and the storm to aid him, using the forces of nature against nature itself. Wow. Using the forces of nature against nature itself. Unbelievable. So that's, that's an interesting idea. I mean, use, using your enemy's strength against him or using, using your enemy's weapons against him. But the idea that consciousness can learn from the unknown what its weapons are and then use those weapons against it, uh, it says something more than what you can read into the story. It says something about, about consciousness being in control of all of this. Tiamat and Apsu both. That... Um, like we talked about, Marduk being the king of the gods now. Um, well, I don't want to get too distracted, so let's keep going. Um, prepared, prepared carefully in this manner, he takes the direct route to Tiamat. He confronts novelty voluntarily. By novelty here, he just means the unknown. So he confronts Tiamat voluntarily at a time of his choosing after careful preparation and without avoidance. His mere appearance strikes terror in the heart of Kingu, and Kingu is the leader of the demons, and his legion of monsters, just as Christ much later terrifies the devil and his minions. Marduk confronts Tiamat, accuses her of treachery, and challenges her to battle. I thought that was interesting too, that that Tiamat accuses excuse me, Marduk accuses Tiamat of treachery. So Marduk's like, you know, look, Ma, I'm gonna kill you. And why? Because because of your treachery. Now we knew we know that Tiamat was going to kill her children. So so this is what you know uh, he's referring to. Um, but the idea that you're going to look scream into the face of God that God is treacherous that that idea to me again brings up uh, the nihilistic you know Columbine type of of people. Somebody who would say, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be that extreme. I mean, we, we've all maybe said this in a moment of uh, uh, in a moment of depression. Why did God bring me into this imperfect, painful and flawed existence? You know, why? Why did the universe bring me here into this terrible place? Um, that's the kind of treachery that I think uh, comes to mind. If you were if you were screaming into the face of God about His treachery, that that's the kind of thing that we think of. That we're the the children of God in a manner of speaking, and that the place that God has brought us into is just flawed and imperfect. How dare you? That kind of a thing. That's a short sighted way of looking at it. It's a one sided way of looking at it. It's an immature way of looking at it because you're only looking at you know Tiamat in her in her bad form, and you're ignoring her. Her good, her good form, the creative form. All right, so the next part is uh, is maybe the climactic part. So when Tiamat opens her mouth to devour him, he lets an arrow fly, which tears her interiors and splits her heart. So this is a quote from the Anuma Elish. He split her open like a muscle into two parts, 
half of her set in place and formed the sky of a, of a, as a roof. He fixed the crossbar and posted guards. He commanded them not to let her waters escape. All right, so this is the... Um, Oh, oh, and it says, and the great structure he, he established, namely Earth. So but what's happened here is um, Mardukas, uh, Tiamat's, you know, taken that death blow, trying to kill Marduk. Marduk says, no ma'am, and shoots an arrow in and kills her and finally succeeds in destroying Tiamat. And he tears her in two like a muscle, it says. And half of her he places as a sky, he places as, as a roof, you know, he makes the sky out of her, the heavens. And then it says he puts a he puts a crossbar and guards and commands them not to let her waters escape. And so this is associated with him creating the earth, like the earth is enclosing her somehow, enclosing the, you know, the, the, uh, the chaos or the, again, the unconscious. You can see the, the oceans uh, as a symbol of that, you know, surrounding all the continents, let's say. So this is the picture that's being painted. Um, and, and what's interesting here is this part about uh, Marduk basically sending the gods down to keep her her waters contained so they don't escape. And this goes back to the idea of using a net to, to encapsulate Tiamat. So what he wants to do is keep, remember, remember Tiamat is the salt water, and he wants, to, he wants to keep that contained so that she can't escape. So what he's doing here is he's taking the infinite creative force, the matrix of being, and he's, he's, he's not destroying it. You can't. You can't, get rid of, you can't get rid of chaos. You can't get rid of the unknown. And creation continues even after Tiamat's death, obviously. So what, what's, what's done here is she's not been destroyed so much as contained. She's been differentiated and delimited. She's, she's been taken from this infinite, uncontrollable you know, uh, power to something that, that is now um, limited and ordered and made into something that's, that's real. And so this is where the earth comes in. And Jordan says, Marduk then constructs the heavenly order, fashioning the year, determining the movements of the stars, the planets, and the moon. Finally, he deigns to create man out of Kingu. I remember, Kingu is the, is the king of the monsters that, that uh, Tiamat created. Uh, the greatest and most guilty of all Tiamat's allies. So that upon him shall, shall the service of the gods be imposed, that they may be at rest. And that... that line is directly quoted from the Anuma Elish. A couple things that are interesting here. First one is that human beings are said to have been made out of the king of the demons. And so um, I find that interesting because in the Western world we have this idea of original sin. Like human beings are born sinful. And then, you know, even as a baby, if you die without the salvation of Jesus, so so says the dogma, that you go to hell. Um... And so the idea of this original sin that we're scarred with sin, even from our, our birth, even if we haven't done anything wrong, um, that that's echoed here. Like human beings are made from the king of the demons. So yeah, we're we're got it right down deep in our, in us, down deep in our being. We're we're we have we're of the same substance as the king of the demons. I think that's another way of talking about original sin. It's kind of interesting. Um, and then he says that, uh, and then he, again, the quote was, upon him shall the service of the gods be imposed that they may be at rest. What does this mean exactly? That man shall be forever destined to serve the gods? Uh, those psychological motivations, those instincts and emotions that we talked about? Uh, that seems pretty fair. Maybe that those supernatural or transpersonal forces now have a place to reside where they can be at rest. And where is that place? So, so human beings have been created, and now the gods um, are, are 
are being served by man. And he says that they may be at rest, that the gods may be at rest. So you you, may, you remember when the gods were making a bunch of ruckus. That's what, that's what caused Tiamat to say, and, and Apsu to say, we're going to kill all of our kids. We're going to kill all the gods. Um, so they were, they were, I don't know what they were doing, but they weren't at rest. They were doing something that was pissing off mom and dad. And here, after human beings get created, the story says that that they may be at rest. So human beings are created, and upon him shall the service of the gods be imposed so that they may be at rest. And then it goes on to say that the uh, the place that that the the place that 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 they'll be at rest seems to be connected to the creation of human beings. So what I'm getting at here, guys, is that where is the place that the gods can be at rest? If human beings have been created and now they're being served by the gods, uh, the human beings are serving the gods, rather, and, and the gods can be at rest, does that mean that they are at rest because they because human beings are doing all the work for them? Or does that mean that they now have a place to reside where they can be at rest? And if that's And if that's the right way of looking at it, where is that place that they reside? Well, it comes about when human beings are created. So it seems to me that the psyche is the place where the gods reside. So even the myth is telling you that. You know, the psychologist Jordan Peterson obviously comes to that conclusion, but even the myth seems to be telling you that when it says, upon the creation of man, the gods now have a place where they may be at rest. Boy. All right. So the Enuma Elish describes the nature of the eternal relationship between the unknowable source of all things and the subject or process who constructs determinate experience through voluntary encounter with the unknown. Tiamat is simultaneously the thing that breeds everything as the thing, and the thing that destroys everything and as the thing that is cut into pieces by the hero who constructs the world. Marduk, the last-born child of instinct, is the hero who voluntarily faces the creative, destructive power that constitutes the place from which all things emerge. Unbelievable. Then he says here, and we're getting almost done here, he says, it's a relatively small step from this dramatic, imagistic portrayal of the hero, so think about Marduk here, to the most explicit Christian doctrine of logos, the creative word, and from there, our notion of consciousness. So here he's saying that that Marduk, this mythological image of Marduk as consciousness, what it represents, that it's just a hop, skip, and a jump away from this notion of the logos that we see in the Bible. And, and of course, we know there's a connection between the the Sumerians and the, and the Hebrews. They're both Semitic people living in the same part of the world. So that doesn't surprise you. But then from there, he says that that idea of logos, that's only a hop, skip, and a jump from the modern idea of consciousness. And so, again, what we're, what we're talking about here coming full circle is the idea of this meta-myth of, of Marduk uh, being uh, a representation of, of consciousness. So Marduk was addressed by 50 different names, Jordan says, in, some, in Mesopotamia. Um, each name signified an independent uh, uh, attribute or property. So at one point he thinks that all of these 50 names may have actually been 50 gods, and they all kind of got consolidated into, into Marduk. They all kind of roll up under under the, the Marduk. And that happens. I mean, you know, you can imagine if, you know, in ancient times, if my tribe comes over and does battle with your tribe and we win, then the god that you worshipped, maybe he just is another name for, for the god that, that 
that I worship now. So like I've taken over and I've given you my, you know, given you my God's defeated your God because I've defeated your, you know, my people have defeated your people. And so our gods kind of merge together or, or you know, your God becomes a subordinate to my God or something. So he's, this is what he's talking about. That at one, that there's 50 different names used for Marduk and that he says it seems evident that the attribution of these 50 names uh, parallels the movement towards monotheism described in the Enuma Elish itself with all of the gods organizing themselves voluntarily under Marduk's dominion. So there's a move historically, you know, from the ancient times where people worshipped all these different gods to slowly um, the monotheistic or the one god religion start to become more dominant. And uh, today, obviously, that's that's the case. And he's saying that this this is actually kind of the beginning. Like Marduk maybe is the beginning of this process where the, all of these different gods, they just sort of get rolled up into uh, under Marduk they all they're all seen as just different characteristics of consciousness and that the more you do that the more you can consolidate gods under that umbrella um, the closer and closer you get to an idea of one god and he said that even the Enuma Elish just tries to describe this process when he says hey the gods all met and they voted Marduk king of the gods so we're all subordinate to Marduk all of the gods roll up to Marduk so in in a sense there's only Marduk just like we talked about in the beginning when we said Apsu and Tiamat were together in the beginning, and that was all there is. There was only that Ouroboros. And in this case, he's saying there's only Marduk. He goes on, it, it might be said that the Mesopotamians came to realize, in ritual and image at least, that all the life-sustaining processes that they worshipped in representation were secondary aspects of the exploratory, creative, rejuvenating process embodied by Marduk. And it's not something that they necessarily understood. Like I said, they're acting it out. They're embodying that. But at that, at that time, at that ancient time, they didn't, they didn't exactly understand what they, what they were doing when they were consolidating those gods uh, into Marduk. What they were doing was, was realizing that that consciousness um, plays the role that they, that they thought the gods played up until now. And so the, the god that becomes king that all the other gods roll up to that's the god of consciousness. Now, that's the story we're telling in, in uh, Sumeria and Babylon, Babylon. That's the story. That's the myth. That's the meta story that we're telling. Even though, again, at that time, people didn't, it didn't likely understand what that, what, what that meant. They didn't understand what was, what, that, what was going to come of that. And the idea that monotheism would become the, uh, you know, the uh, dominant religious perspective uh, in exactly the same lines as Marduk as the king of the gods. And even in a scientific perspective, for that matter, or a psychological perspective, and the idea that consciousness plays a role, a, a critical role in, in being. It's unbelievable. All right, almost done. So I'm going to paraphrase Jordan a little bit here. He, he explains the story of Marduk parallels an Egyptian story. Uh, the oldest, actually, the oldest Egyptian creation story we have. And it, it's about a god named Ptah, P-T-A-H, Ptah. Now, Ptah was called the all-encircling serpent, so very much the same symbol as the Ouroboros, the, the dragon eating its tail, the all-encircling serpent. And the story of Ptah that we're going to talk about, it comes from um, 2700 BC, it probably is many thousands of years older than that. It's the most ancient story that we have about um, uh, the creation story from ancient Egypt. Um, and then there's a guy named uh, Merche Eliade. He's a uh, uh, he's a, an anthropologist who wrote about it. And, and this is a quote from him. He says, "It is Ptah who made the gods exist. 
In short, the theogony, which is the creation of the gods, and the cosmogony, which, which is the creation of the earth, are affected by the creative power of thought and word of a single god. That's Ptah. Uh, we here certainly have the highest expression of Egyptian metaphysical speculation. It is at the beginning of Egyptian history that we find a doctrine that can be compared with Christian theology of the logos or word. Uh, he goes on, um, or this is Jordan here. The Egyptians realized that consciousness and linguistic ability, or the ability to represent, were vital to the existence of things, precisely as vital as the unknowable matrix of their being. Okay, so there's a lot, there's a lot here, man. But, but the idea is that um, that we go back to the very earliest record we have in Egyptian mythology, and we have a god Ptah, very much like Marduk. Uh, who represents the Ouroboros. Where he's, the, he's the thing that all the gods come from and all of the cosmos comes from. And he's saying that that idea, that god, um, Ptah, is so similar to the Christian idea of Logos. And again, we just talked about that being a, a kind of a natural progression from this idea of Marduk, um, that even in ancient Egypt, going back as far back as, as you know, many thousands of years BC, um, in the early, early days, we have something like that, where consciousness is revered, you know, again, not, not in a direct way, but in a kind of symbolic way, um, whether they knew it or not, that they were, that they were raising consciousness to the, to the level of this primordial God. Um, and they didn't exactly, they didn't exactly, um, equate themselves with that, um, they did sort of with the pharaoh or, or with the king, but not with the individual people so much. But that's something that would that would eventually happen, and it's definitely something that happens in the mystic experience. All right, so here's the conclusion as far as I have uh, as far as I have it. When I study religion and mythology, I, I I'm always struck most by the creation stories, just like the Enuma Elish that we've been reading today, and and the the familiar story from Genesis one. Why? Because as far as, as far as I'm concerned, there is no more important question than how did existence come to be? And nothing more interesting than our attempts at answering that question. Also, because this is the only kind of myth that addresses our relationship to existence and begs the question, what am I? Coming to know what existence is, therefore tells us something about what we ourselves are. It is as though we are answering these questions together, as if they are the same question. And it reminds me, of, again, of that uh, phrase, as above, so below. You see, if Jordan Peterson's framing of the classical gods as transpersonal instinctive forces is true, then all the myths about the gods are merely meta-stories about our own psyche, the struggles between gods are battles between our various instincts and motivations. We read these myths as a sort of foreshadowing of our own development or as a dramatic representation of our own lives. The creation myth, though, it's different. The gods in this story are one. They are unknowable except for in metaphor, and yet they're intriguing in their familiarity. We know these gods, chaos, order, and the divine sun. We see them in, our, in ourselves and all around us, and yet they seem more distant and abstract than any others. The familiarity, I think, 
is unconscious recognition that those primordial forces characterize yourself at the deepest level and everything else as well. Like the mystic experience suggests, there is no distinction between yourself and God. And so the story of creation is your story and mine. Literally, as well as figuratively. Now, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. We are the experience that God is having. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.